Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Writer's Table, episode 25. Tonight, we're going to um, talk about um, writing and publishing, and there are quite a few questions that we had put together um, in a list, and so we're going to go through those, and if you have any questions, make sure to put them in the ask a question thing, so that it'll be easier, um, easier for us to find them and they don't get lost in the chat room, because the chat room does get very busy. And if your question is in relation to something that we said, can you give it some context? Because sometimes by the time we read the question, we don't understand the context. That'd be great. So, can you hear me chewing? Because I'm hungry. I took my metformin about an hour ago. I took it late. Sorry. Um, and um, because I took my metformin, it um, about an hour after I take it, it makes me really hungry. And normally I take it before dinner, except I didn't. So now I'm having to have a snack. So I got a protein snack on the thing. I got some sliced ham, beautiful boar's head, smoked, sm oh, excellent. Smoked ham and some Gouda. And yes, we can hear you chewing, but it's not horrible. Okay. I'll try to be good about it though. Okay. So... Arit ask, Arit, Arite, I fuck it up every time. I'm sorry, honey. Um, asked, do you get separate checks for each books from the same publisher, or is it the same check, just itemized? Okay, I get itemized statements, one from each publisher, uh, unless it's going to my agent, and if it goes, if it comes through my agent. Because um, I had titles before her and some titles that I've done independently from her based on our contract. Um, a lot of times my agent will compile all the statements together and I'll get one statement from her. With an itemized listing of all the books and stuff. <laughs> Not like Jilly's creepy typing. Okay, so, but yeah, I mean, I think that. Most independent publishers are going to send you an itemized list of um, your uh, your sales. Uh, with print publishers, if you sell nothing, you get nothing. You don't get a statement of zeros. With foreign distribution, um, sometimes a couple years after you sell, you'll get a statement that comes to your publisher and then goes to your agent. And, you know. and when I get a check from my agent, it'll be one big check all combined. Even if it's even if it's money from more than one publisher, but actually it's a direct deposit, but it's all one direct deposit. It depends on how it was contracted. Because I had a I had a lot of um, books published before I got an agent. Um, because I didn't I didn't pick up an agent until I went into um, print publishing with 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 the New York House for the first time, because I was a I was worried about doing my own contract in that situation. When it came to independent publishers, you know, ebooks and stuff, I was very comfortable. The, the The contracts are really simple; they're easy to read. They're not. There's nothing convoluted or you know, really complicated legal language that you don't understand. Um, remember to put your questions in the "Ask Me Anything" or "Ask the Question" thing. So, when you contract a novel through your agent your agent gets their percentage on every piece of royalty you make as long as it's in print. 
they get a slice of any foreign language additions that you do. That's your relationship with the agent. That's how your agent gets paid. My agent takes 15%. And she will get 15% on every book she negotiated. Um, it... Mm. 15 cent, yeah, 15 percent is pretty normal. I mean, unless it's like you're getting into um, script writing, if you got, you know, and then they might have a higher percentage depending on the market. Um, but that would be something you would negotiate with the um, with your agency, you know. Um, but I think 15 percent is pretty normal um, to get an agent to work on your behalf because they don't make money unless you make money. So they're going to make sure you get the best possible deal. Yeah, I mean, they would get a percentage of film rights, foreign language. I have books um, in Spanish, French, German, and Portuguese. Germany loves me. I guess the dirtier, the better. The dirtier, the better. Even then, they still love me. <laughs> okay. Next question. Okay, I've already answered this slice of royalty. Let's see. Is it easier? I'm going to delete that since I've already answered it. Um, is it easier to get an agent when you've already been published or does that matter? Uh, it does not matter. Um, I think that, um, you know, independent publishing, on, with, you know, with ebooks like with Lucid, like not, they don't even exist anymore. God, um, Dream Spinner, um, Siren, Cobblestone, um, Liquid Silver. Is Wild Rose still in business? Wild Shot. No, they're, they're closed too. MMR. Um, M MMR. When you... Those publications are nice. They're great. Um, it adds to your prof professional resume. But when you get on deck with an agent, it's because you've given them... You've caught their attention with a particular title. You can't just approach an agent and say, hey, I have all these books published and I would like to get into print and um, I want you to work with me. Well, no. That's not how that works. You have to submit to them a book and ask them for their representation. And if they like your book um, and, they're, and they're willing to, to work with it and to work with you, they'll, they'll offer you a contract and then you'll sign that contract and... They will pitch your book on your behalf to various companies. And if you're really lucky, you'll get into an auction situation where publishers will meet together or buying editors will meet in a room and there will be an auction on your rights, on your first print rights. And your agent will negotiate that. And that would be very, very exciting. What happens to your book when a publishing website goes out of business? It honestly depends on the publisher. Oh, God. Um, so, like, when um, there's, a, there's a publisher, actually, I can, we can, what's Third Love just went out, of, they're going out of business, and they have a page up um, talking about what's going to happen and in their case they're giving people basically their final copy they get back i think they're getting their cover art back they're allowing them to have their cover art lucid did the same thing they basically gave the the authors their final copy because the final copy belongs to the publisher it doesn't belong to the author um 
So the, the edited copy, that belongs to them. So they're giving them back their rights. They give them back their final copy. Sometimes they give them their art. Um, Lucid did that. Third Love is doing that. And Third Love actually is making a really nice offer, which is that if anybody wants help generating their, because they can't use the eBooks that Third Love generated, is if they want help generating their new eBooks that take out the Third Love mentions as the publisher and stuff, that they will generate the new eBooks for them so that they can do distribution, do self-publishing. It's a lot of work. Um, a couple of years, I guess about a decade ago, there was a publisher that went out of business. Unfortunately, they went directly into bankruptcy. And because they went into bankruptcy, all of their assets were frozen, including the books that they had contracted. Those books became assets in bankruptcy court. And because the publisher had not released those books before filing bankruptcy, the court auctioned the rights to pay their bills. Oh Not individually. The books weren't auctioned individually. They were auctioned at a set. So authors couldn't go into the court and try to buy their books or their rights back. Um, so, yeah, that happened. Um, and I think that was a lesson for a lot of independent publishers because I've never seen it happen again. I mean, even when Elora's Cave fell apart, that didn't happen. Um, so, yeah. But it was a nightmare. I had a few friends who it took her. Well, the one, one friend in particular who had books with that company, she's still not sure who has her rights for her book. And her contract with that company expired like three years ago. And she still doesn't know who has the rights to her book, if she has the rights or not. And as a result, that book is basically dead because she can't do anything with it. So it happens. That's, I mean, it happens, just... you know. But that could happen easily with a print company as well. No, there's no way to track it. Um, in fact, I think the rights didn't even sell. So they're still part of the bankruptcy. And the bankruptcy hasn't discharged yet or something. I don't really know the details since I wasn't privy to the details of the court filing. Um, but uh, this could happen easily with a print publisher as well. I mean, if Penguin filed bankruptcy tomorrow, all of the contracts, the book contracts that they have currently contracted, all those books and the rights to publish them would fall into company asset. And the court would decide what happened to them. And if the authors were lucky that the an, another publisher, like, I don't know, just, you know, another big publisher would come in and pull the rights and, and buy the rights so that they could get the intellectual property out that yeah like, like random house if, if random house came in and bought it yeah it's in legal purgatory um even if the contract is expired the process of the company being in bankruptcy is still in court so everything is basically frozen okay apparently penguin and random house are the same company they merged a few years ago i wonder why they merged i think a lot of times companies merge like that to save themselves <laughs> Because it's a rough market. Okay, someone asked, um, can you put that in your contract that you get your stuff back? No. I mean, you could put it in there, but the court would be like, ha, 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 no. Because the court wouldn't be required to follow the rules of a contract that they didn't have anything to do with. Because when you fall into bankruptcy court, the people you owe money to, they're the victims. So, 
I, so, so Edie says in the chat room, so ideally you'd want something written in the contract to protect author's rights in the instance that the publishing company can't fulfill their side. Um, you could, like I said, you could, you could have a clause like that in your contract, but it would mean nothing if the court decided that, I mean, if you're six months into the contract of a five-year publishing deal and your book has been published, it's an asset for the company. And no matter what you think you put in the contract, it would still be up to the judge to decide how your how the court um, how the company's assets were were dealt with. It'd be useless. So you know, most I mean, like I said, that that happened a very long time ago, and I have not seen it happen since. Um, because. I don't believe for an instance that company didn't see that coming a mile away. And you see someone like Lucid close with a great deal of dignity. That they released their books, they released their cover art. We're sorry this is happening. We have to let go. We've done all we can. Here are your rights. And they closed the door in the black. They weren't, they didn't file bankruptcy. So I gave the name of the pre uh, the publisher incorrectly earlier. It's, oh, I just had a brain fart. It's uh, it's less than three. Uh, press is who is going out of business now. And if anybody wants to read about what their separation from their from their from their authors looks like, you can read about it there. Yeah, the 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 ladies at Lucid were they went out with a great deal of dignity and grace. And so you know when you see a publisher do that. That's that's good. And that's how most of the time it happens. So you don't want to go with a five-by-night publisher when it's been in business for a year or two where you don't know the names behind it. Where there's not somebody at the helm that is unrecognizable who doesn't appear to have any experience in the publishing industry. Because you don't know what they're... They had nothing to defend or protect. And and there's a trend um, kind of emerging, um, like it's sort of like a vanity imprint for like individual authors, uh, which is that's nothing new. Like an author will create a publishing company that just puts out their books, and then they self-publish those books, and it it doesn't um, limit them the way like like publishing on Kindle Direct limits them, which is that, you know, you can't really publish anywhere else if you're in, in Kindle Unlimited. But um, I've seen a couple of instances where they like, like, will start bringing like, like try to, you know, expand a little bit, like bring in other authors, and there'll be like two or three authors, and then they'll start to grow. That's, I'd, I'd be really careful about that. That's really sketchy, because you might wind up signing a contract where you're signing your books over to somebody who doesn't have a freaking clue what they're doing. I mean, I look at a company and it's like, oh, well, they went into business last year. I'm going to sit back and watch them for a while, see how they do. <laughs> yeah. And if it's glorified self-publishing anyway, you might as well just actually, if, if you're going to go that right, that route, you might as well just actually self-publish and keep the rest of the money for yourself. I, I just, I mean, I think I, I don't, we've talked before, I'm not a big fan of self-publishing, but glorified self-publishing is the same thing. So what I would also say is that when you sign with a company, um, give them a, like, submit a story. Their <laughs> minimum amount of 
word count you can get away with. If they offer you five, um, five to 10K, take that. Get into their process. Go through, uh, don't sign a contract that requires you to submit your next work to them. Um, or that, that has a first look clause that's um, really stringent. I find first look clauses really offensive personally. I wouldn't sign a contract with a first look clause now. But I did when I was younger. I didn't know any better. Oh, um, that's obnoxious. What the what's the first look clause? Yeah. I'd be like, no. <laughs> what are you looking at? What am I looking at? Hmm? Who are you talking to? So, but um, just submit a, a short to them, right? Get into their process. L look at their editing process. Look at how you get your cover art, what your cover art looks like. Um, and see how comfortable you are um, before you submit a second or a third work to them. See if their process works for you. Contact authors that are currently published with them. And say, hey, how do you like that process? Did you get your statements on time? Do you get paid on time? Does the publisher answer your questions? Somebody asked, can you explain a little better the first look clause? The first look clause. The first look clause is, um, the first look clause is, uh, like, okay, the first time I signed a contract with a print publisher was, is when I encountered the first look clause. And I had signed a contemporary romance. And, um, in my contract, there was a first look clause, and that clause basically stated that the next full-length contemporary romance that I wrote that was at least 70K, that they had the right to look and review first. They had the first right of refusal. So when I finished my second book of that length, I sent it to my agent, and she sent it to that publisher, and they said, yes, we like it. We want some more of it. And they sent me a check. Well, but they sent me a contract and they sent me a check. Because <laughs> I signed the contract. And that contract had a first look clause. Um, and that, and so I, I wrote another book. And I sent it off to them. And they said yes. And um, I asked my agent. I was like, okay, so they have a first look. They get first right of refusal. And they said yes. Do I have to say yes back? And she said no. I said, okay. She said, do you want to say no? I was like, no. I, I, no, no they, uh, they can send me their money. I was just curious <laughs> if I had to say yes back. And I didn't. And that's how my first look clauses worked. I wasn't required. And a lot of times a, a company will tell you, um, hey, you know, even like, I like this series. I would like to see the next book in the series. And that's fine. I mean, I would expect that. If I'm going to write a series of books, I want my, my publisher to be invested in them. And to be look and, and to look forward to getting them, you know. Um, but to have the clause in the contract, I wouldn't sign one today. Now, sometimes you'll get a contract offer from a print company where it'll be a three book deal, and it'll be contracted. It'll say title of the book you've submitted them plus two other titles of this genre of this length. And then you'll have due dates on when those other two books are due. Which I, you know, some people thrive on deadline and some don't. I did not do well on deadlines. I, you know, I do exceptionally well on deadlines, but I burn out on 
doing well on deadlines. So if I've had like six or seven or eight or 10, um, like significant deadlines in a row, I just start to go, I just am really tired of this. I'm tired of that. Kind of a bit of a procrastinator. So there's always this crunch at the end. <laughs> so I just can, I can burn myself out on that cycle. So I have to be careful not to get into too many projects that have like a really stringent deadline. I had this problem with technical writing too. It's like, you know, one, you know, user manual after another do, or one training guide after another do. Um, and, you know, here are these firm due dates. And it just, it got to be us, us just rough. Because I do well, I pull it out, but it just started to get stressful that it was just everything was always on a deadline. I'm, I'm deleting the, com the questions I've already answered, so I don't retread them because, you know, Fabro Fog is a thing. Well, I think there's a funny thing about due dates. Um, I think it's actually, in a weird way, it's harder when it's creative because you can, um, sometimes you're just not in a creative space, right? But if it's a due date and you're doing something that's like not creative, like editing or um, technical writing, whatever kind of documentation, that's just, a, you just do it, right? That's just a skill. So it doesn't matter if you're feeling particularly creative that day. You just, and I'm not saying there's not ever any creative aspects of technical writing, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying that it's a, just a different space to, to go in and work to that deadline. But when you've got a deadline to get something creative written, Mm. It's just it's just different. It's just different. I wouldn't I would I would I don't want to say never. Because if you know one of my publishers reached out to me and said, Hey, I'll give you five thousand dollars if you'll sign this contract. I, I I need this book in six months. It's it's hard to turn down a check. <laughs> I mean it's really hard to turn down a check. Especially a check for like $5,000. It would be like $5,000. I could pay off my car with $5,000. No, I mean, really, I could pay. And then you're like, I can write a book in six months. I can write a book in a month. I can do this. I'm going to cash this check. <laughs> so you talk yourself into it, right? Even well, though it's really, even really not what you want to do. I mean, I can write a hundred k to mother if I if I put my mind to it, and I have. Yeah, I totally have. Yeah, yeah. You've written way more than that. Cleared one hundred and fifty k on uh on uh the first challenge I ever did with you. You did one hundred fifty k the first month. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote uns um unspeakable plot on rough trade and it's and when i stopped writing i was around 150k at the end of the no november of that year Whew. like i said some writers really thrive in a deadline environment and they do very well writing on spec i'm not one of those but i'm not saying i'd never do it again because like i said when someone offers you a substantial amount of money it's really hard to say no <laughs> No, I just actually took typing class in high school. I took two years of typing and then two years of keyboarding. 
And I will say that writing on a mechanical keyboard has really helped my hand stress a lot. Um, I type faster. I don't get fatigued as much. Um, I'm not getting hand cramps. I thought, you know, actually, <laughs> what I learned in keyboarding was very helpful. Because I can use a computer without a mouse. <laughs> yeah, I used, I used to be able to. Yeah, I mean, I knew every shortcut in Windows that there was. But Mac, there's stuff you have to do with a mouse. It's just... Yeah. It just, there's not keyboard shortcuts. And, and the keyboard shortcuts that we do have, sometimes it's like a four-key keyboard shortcut. I'm like, no. That's the one thing I did not like, is being more mouse-driven on a Mac. Which is why, it's just in a random aside, it's because now I've got my hand on the mouse most of the time. The majority of my passwords are all left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my... um. I also, um, when I started writing, one of the first things I asked for was a typewriter. So by the time I took a typing class in high school, I was already a pretty decent touch typist. My form was a little off. I, you know, I, I was, used, I, was I, used, I was using from a chart that my came on my just kind oh. of type. It came with my typewriter, and so I'd put that chart up in front of me, and I'd practiced. But I still was a little off. I um, I learned to type on. I mean, I got we got my first computer when I was twelve, and that's when I started writing. So I learned. We, you know, we had the first version of Typing Tutor, and I learned to type with the you know this really ridiculous typing game of falling letters, right? And you're not supposed to look at the keys. So that's how I learned to type. I didn't use a a, a typewriter. I never used a typewriter until I actually entered the workforce. <laughs> So I was I was close to twenty before I think I think I mean maybe my grandmother had a typewriter that I used occasionally or something because she actually my God would she actually wrote all of her letters carbon copy and so um, like literal if 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 you're young enough that you don't actually understand what I mean by carbon copy you know so she had like a drawer full of sheets of carbon paper and she would roll two sheets you know she'd put a piece of carbon paper between two pieces of paper and roll it into her typewriter and that's how she did all of her letters. So she have a copy, a little weirdo. So when she died, we found boxes and boxes and boxes of her, the carbon copies of her correspondence. Did she ever cuss anybody out? That's the kind of thing. I would be reading them. She didn't cuss anybody out, but grandma was salty. See what Nana was up to. And she was a gossip. So she had the whole letters where she was telling some, you know, so-and-so about so-and-so and what the heck they had done and everything they had done wrong and why we shouldn't be talking <laughs> to them anymore. I mean, grandma was, she was a salty gossip is what she was. This is my great grandmother. No, she was just a gossip and she liked to, I think she thought she was going to have a bad memory or something one day. I don't know, but she just kept everything. I keep copies of everything. Well, I keep copies of everything too digitally. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but if I didn't have digitally, I'd be doing it manually. I would. I know me. But when I used to, actually, but when I used to handwrite letters to my friends, I never worried about keeping copies of it. I usually ended up with a copy, actually, because I would rewrite it because it wouldn't be pretty. What? <laughs> What's Sam? Oh, there you go. I had nice handwriting when I was a teenager. I, my handwriting is a hot mess now, but I had nice handwriting when I was younger. So I was, I would sometimes type my letters to people and then transcribe them by hand, like write them down so that people would thought I put an effort in. 
And I somehow managed to never have anything out crossed out because, of course, I'd rewritten it. I had a brother. I had a brother typewriter. Um, it was my most prized possession. I was I was deeply enamored with it. So, okay. So the next question on my list is: Is there a Phoenix Rising asked? Is there a general length for romance? Or what is a normal word count for submissions? It's my experience that um, traditional print companies they have two lengths. Um, if you're going to be part of an anthology, it's twenty to twenty-five k. And if you're going to be on your own published, it's between 70 and 90,000 words. Um, online, there are short stories, short storylines you can submit to, um, especially for erotica, where you can do five to 10,000 words. Cobblestone has two different erotica lines, Blue and Trist, not Trist, Wicked. And Wicked is the five to 10K, which is what I did for the Merman. And the one I did on top, I did that for Blue. Uh, that's an in-house only author um, erotica line. And that line was three to 5,000 words. And there are a lot of companies out there who have short storylines, um, you know, for quick reads. So it's, it really honestly depends on the publisher. But I think if you're look if you're going towards a full length novel, your, your goal should be around 75K very respectable links but I wouldn't go over 100 I know some publishers who won't even read 100k in a romance novel they'd be like ha 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 no who do you think you are George R. Martin he doesn't write romance you're in the wrong genre take your ass over to sci-fi or fantasy or both <laughs> both is good whereas in fantasy or science fiction you can get away with Anywhere from 100 to 150K on a on a freshman novel. Um, so Harlequin is about 70K. Harlequin has several lines. If, if you're looking at Harlequin Desire, I think that's about 50,000 words. Those little short books, you know, the red ones that came out. I'm not sure if they even still make those. Let's look. Let's go look at the Harlequin line. I know that Harlequin has an e-publisher. I think it's called Karina. Yeah. That's their ebook e imprint, Karina Press. Okay, Karina does um, adult romance mystery, LGBTQ plus. Um, I think their I think their bottom end is ten k. So let me clicking on Karina Press's submissions. Ch -ch -ch, brief letter. Ooh, they ask. They require a synopsis. Oh God, how terrible. Ugh. See guidelines about us word count. Make me make me hunt for it, honey. Just make me hunt. Okay. So they have two. They have two. Basically, they want anything over twenty five k for most of their erotica line or their erotic romance lines. But this is for just for Karina, um, which is part of Harlequin. They do short erotic romance. Um, where it could be ten for the dirty bits line, which is for ten to twenty-five k. So ten's their bottom line, apparently. And that's Karina. Let's look at others. 
We've got our Harlequin books. Da, da, da. What we're known for. I know what you're known for. I cut my teeth on your books. Acquiring editors. Each of their editors has a little thing of what they're what they're asking for, but I don't see any word links. Yeah, Bane Books, um, which is a huge sci-fi fantasy publisher, their preferred length is a hundred to one hundred and thirty thousand. So if you're a wordy bitch, there's your spot. <laughs> if you write science fiction or fantasy, of course, Harlequin Books is only taking agents agented submissions right now. Okay, so Harlequin Dare. This is um this is their lines. Fifty thousand words. Harlequin Desire, fifty thousand. Harlequin Heartwarming, seventy. Harlequin Historical, approximately seventy-five thousand. Um, Harlequin Intrigue, fifty-five. Harlequin Medical Romance, yee, fifty k. Harlequin Presents, fifty k. Harlequin Romance, fifty k. Harlequin Romantic Suspense, seventy. Harlequin Special Edition, fifty-five. Those books used to be purple when I was young. Um, Love Inspired, 55. Love Inspired Suspense, 55. So it seems like 50 is their is their minimum. And their maximum is 75 in their historical line. Um, I think that Harlequin's links influence National Writing Novel Month. Because Harlequin was around before National Novel Writing Month happened. And for a long time, um, 50K was, was the sweet spot for um, submitting romance novels to Harlequin. Um, and it remains pretty much the sweet spot. But Harlequin's been in business for a very long time. So they predate Nano. Okay, where was I? Okay. What's in the chat room here? Let's see. At what point would you consider an agent? If I was not already contracted with an agent um and i was actively seeking print publication i would also be actively seeking an agent um if you get an offer an offer from a print company you immediately turn around and, and find an agent and it's actually pretty easy to find an agent if you have a deal on the table <laughs> now I'm not, I have to say you won't get rejected by somebody because there are some, I mean, you got to pick the right agent, an agent who actually represents what you're selling. You know, you can't go to an agent who specializes in science fiction and ask them to rep your romance novel. Number one, they don't have the context for that. And number two, it's, it's not their bailiwick, so they're not even going to want to read it. So you're going to want to find an agent who specializes in your chosen genre and um, go from there. That's true. That's always true. Even if you have a even if you don't have a deal on the table. So apparently Harlequin was founded in 1949. Okay, so question. What happens when a book or series is announced but no book ever materializes? Are there penalties for the author? Um Yeah. I mean, if you've signed a contract um and you don't deliver, you're you're opening yourself up to be sued. Uh, and if you've taken money and you don't deliver, you owe them some money. And they will sue your ass to get their money back. 
And at the very least, you have destroyed your relationship with that company. And you will never get another contract with them. And if you work with an agent, you could lose your agent too. Because your agent will fire your ass. Now, I don't, this is, this was way, way back in the day. I want to say it was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I don't remember all the details, but uh, sometimes the publisher, of course, and it's hard to say, are they doing it because they're being decent human beings or are they doing it because it would be bad publicity not to do it this way? But um, there was a romance writer who um, her family were all killed in a car crash. Um, and she had a book that was already supposed, she had a book that was supposed to be due. She had a contract, but she had a contract, multiple contracts for multiple book and her, like her whole family died in a car crash. And, um, the publisher issued a statement basically saying, of course, they were going to completely support her and that, the, you know, her contracts would be waiting for her when she was ready to start writing again. But yeah, she missed, you know, her publication deadline. Well, yeah. Those Obviously. are circumstances outside of her control. Right. So, but I mean, technically, legally, they could have been a dick about it. They just weren't. Right. And they would have actually suffered a lot. That would have been some serious, you know. Right. And in that day wow, and age. Dick faces. And in that day and age, it wouldn't have hurt them like it would today. Because today, if they act like a dick face about something like that, somebody puts a copy of a letter up online, and the next and thing you know. On Twitter. Right. And then they got a big. They're getting hate mail. How dare you be so mean to my favorite author? Oh, my God, you cow. Right. You cow. Etc. <laughs> but right, it just depends on the company and what's involved. But at the very least, you ruined your relationship with that company. And if you have an agent, you might have ruined your relationship with them too. And publishers talk. Yeah, if you screw one publisher over, they're gonna tell all their friends. <laughs> it will get around. If you are a diva in editing. If you act really inappropriately, it's going to get around. If you don't do your part, if you don't do your promos, if you don't you know, engage in the process, it's going to get around. It'll come back to bite you. I once had a publisher who um, said that if somebody submitted to her, and failed to follow her very simple um, instructions for submitting that she would not read their work and would just um, send them a form letter rejecting them and toss it. Because she said, if they can't follow my very simple instructions that I bully pointed, how in the hell can I trust them in editing? And I'm like, well... <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of evil, but you're not wrong. Well, you'd mentioned on a prior podcast that you you'd you'd occasionally in the past done at some acquisitions editing work. Mm -hmm. um, did you have have the same feeling when you would get submissions that were like totally not what they were? People were supposed to be sending in. Well, when it came like most of my submissions were screened, so but so I would be reading stuff that they you know I wouldn't be getting. Uh, full on slash pile. But um, if I opened up a manuscript and it was formatted incorrectly or it didn't have paragraph breaks or um, it was in some weird fancy curve, um, cursive font and I had to change all that, I would note all of it down. Font was wrong. Spacing was wrong. The margins were two, um, two inches instead of one. 
This manuscript is actually just 150 pages, not 300 like they told you. Um, stuff like that. I'd make notes. I'd make all those notes when I would be, you know, reviewing for for the for the publisher, so that they would know what I had to go through because I was a little bitchy. But also so they would know that the author did not follow their instructions. Let's not use people's names in the chat, like author names. Let's not do that. So if you could edit your comment to take that name out, I'd really appreciate it. Um, so somebody asked, what does it look like? Shadow, Shadow Lighthawk asked, what does it look like when you're a diva in editing? It looks like you are unreasonable. You're unteachable. And more, and honestly, you're probably um, more of a hassle than you're worth. Um, because if you're not teachable, then they have no reason whatsoever to invest in you. I think the teachable part probably is something that in somewhat can emerge over time. Like if, you know, the publisher gives them feedback about do this and this and this, and then their editor says, you know, you consistently make this mistake. Their next book comes in and they've done the same thing. It really shows that they're not teachable. Um, but sometimes you catch it like right away. The other thing that I think at Diva is that just won't take feedback, right? Like everything is a fight, everything. Personally, I go into an edit with a very open mind. And when my editor says, hey, this, this, doesn't, this is a little iffy. I'm not sure what you mean here. I take it seriously because that's their job. And they're pointing out a weakness of my manuscript. So I need to fix it. Because by the time you get to that process, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, your book is no longer your book. It's your publisher's product. And you have a responsibility to, to tailor that product to fit their needs. This, um, this publisher is taking a risk on you, a financial risk, um, to publish your work. So the very least you can do is be a fucking lady or gentleman, etc. There's sort of my, I think there's about three general, well, four general models of people that I've, when I've edited for people. Um, they're the ones, if from, from an editing perspective, these people are kind of a dream, but it's a little bit suboptimal and I'll tell you why, which is it doesn't matter what you say, they agree with you, they just take the change. And the reason why I say it's a little bit suboptimal is because you're not sure they checked out of the process. Do they not care? Are they afraid to disagree with you? Because you'd expect a little bit, because sometimes you don't know, you know, you, I have misinterpreted what an author means, right? Like I've said, you know, you need to change this. It's not clear. Or I've suggested a correction and I, to I totally misunderstood what they meant. So I would expect to hear back and say, no, no, this is what I, this is what I mean. But when it's, everything is perfectly fine. Everything you say is good. They accept every change. They have nothing to say to any comments you've made. It sounds good because it makes the editing quick, but it, it actually is confusing because it's uncommon, but it's confusing because it's like, why doesn't any of this bother you? <laughs> Why, why aren't you having any questions? Do you not, I mean, is it, is it, are you afraid to talk to me? I mean, what's going on? So there's that, I find that to be almost a little bit discomfitting when that comes up. It's come up a couple of times. Um, then there's the one, I, the, the, 
the authors I enjoy working with the most, which is that they're inquisitive. Can you tell me why this change was made? Or, you know, you've made this correction three or four times. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? I want to learn. Um, they have, they ask you, you know, you say, could you clarify this a little bit or expound on this? Or could you cut this back? And they do it and they do their best effort to do it. And they obviously are reading through their entire story with every edit because every time it's in their hands is an opportunity for them to make the story better. And most authors don't take that opportunity. Um, so that's like, to me, that's like a dream, right? It takes a little bit more time, but I feel like it's a collaboration, right? Like it's, they're getting there. This is a, a good process for them and the book's going to be better for it. Um, then there are the ones who they don't want to, they'll accept any kind of corrections you make, but they don't want to make a single solitary content change. Not one. Hell no. They're going to sit <laughs> their heels in. I don't care if you say it's destroying my pace. I don't care what rationale you give for why this needs to change. I'm not doing it. I don't care if it's, you know, if we've got a suspense or disbelief issue. No, I'm not changing this. I'm not fixing it. You know, this is, this is sacred. Leave it alone. Okay. Um, and then there's the ones who, are like that, but they also don't want to accept corrections. Yes, I know I don't need that comma, but I want it. <laughs> like, what the fuck ever, bitch? <laughs> Fine. I'm just so not going to fight with you. Um, well, actually, the thing is, when it, with the one publisher I work with, um, they require that grammar and punctuation spelling corrections be accepted. So when I get pushback about grammar, punctuation, and spelling, sometimes it's like, okay, show me your references that tells me I'm wrong. And sometimes they're like, I don't, you know, I know it's not right, but I don't care. I want it this way. It's like, whatever. <laughs> and then all I can say is, you know, it's going to get corrected. You guys, you have to accept grammar and punctuation changes. So these are corrections that's not optional. <laughs> But, you know, so that, that's like the nightmare at person, right? Um, but the diva is that person who is just too precious to be edited. Oh. I once told a, a, a diva that, I, I told her, I said, look, your bad craft is not author voice. <laughs> your sentence fragments. <laughs> so one sentence fragment is an artistic choice. 400 of them is bad craft. Then you can be a shitty writer all you want. But if you want to get better and you want to be published, this is what you've got to do to do it. And if you don't want to put that work in, you need to get up and leave my table. She never came back to the writing group after that. So I guess I was an asshole. <laughs> It's funny how often people call honesty assholery. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess you can be an asshole with the truth, but still. Yeah, that is, it, it's not, um, they do, I, they do think sometimes that what they're doing is their author voice. Um, when it doesn't really have anything to do with author voice. Uh, now, I will give an example of what, like, kind of is author voice. So, um, that'd be a little bit vague, but, like, publishers will have, like, a style guide. We've talked about style guides. Um, 
and they have sometimes even like a, a lexicon like these are the words we especially in erotica like we prefer you know cock or dick not prick or penis you know they'll be very specific about these are the words you're going to use or um like what's that example you gave the, the 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 publisher that required cock x number of times per thousand words yeah it was the loris cave was it a loris cave they're out okay. of business now yeah so i feel so, comfortable saying that because otherwise if, if they were still in business they'd probably sue me for that so <laughs> <laughs> but there's a um there's a um so like publishers i work for they all have a style guide and um and so there was some word usage in a story I was editing that it didn't conform to the style guide. It was in the list of words. Don't use these words, use these words instead. And I, I did the initial edit and I sent it back to the author and I didn't feel good about all those changes. I didn't feel good about it. And because it felt like that the word usage and the word choice was really solidly part of his his voice his style and so i wrote the publisher and i said and this author, this author was a dream to work with by the way so i wrote the publisher and i say this is this is you know what's in the story and this is you know of course the guideline about what to do with it but it doesn't i i don't feel like it was the right choice so what do you think and she came back you know pretty quickly and says yeah you're right <laughs> Let, let's leave it let's go let's revert and he was very happy that we reverted back to the original verbiage of how he wrote things um but that really was it was something that was a little bit outside the norm for the publisher but it really was his his author voice it was it, it was very distinct and you know i wanted to see that preserved um but changing the position of commas or you know whether to use you know <sighs> writing in sentence fragments, you know, that's not author voice. That's, you know, it just really isn't. Long paragraphs, not author voice. Short chapters, not author voice. The people who write the Chicago or the, the people who maintain the Chicago style of manual are indeed sassy as fuck. Yeah, especially in their online Q&A session, section. Sass to the max. But um, yeah, I had somebody argue with me once that five that the random five hundred word chapters were <laughs> author voice. I was like, oh come on! No, it's a gimmick, and it's a stupid one at that. If you encounter an author, an author who's had no editorial changes in their manuscript, two things happen. Two, one of two things happen. One, she was not edited at all by a line editor or a proofer. In two or two, she paid to be published and wasn't edited. Or that, yeah. The cleanest writer I've ever edited, I had edits. That's just the way that goes. And if I don't, I would reread it and figure out what I was smoking that I didn't notice anything wrong. I mean, I'm a pretty decently clean writer. I have never not had edits. Mostly because I have problems with commas. Um... Jillian is a very clean writer. I'm sure she had edits. Yeah. Because you're not perfect. Nope. I even had content edits. <laughs> actually, I, <laughs> I, I actually expected more content edits than like grammar and punctuation edits. Um, that's I actually expected that because I really did go over that the very, very carefully before I sent it in. And I also reread it every time 
that it came back to me too. So sometimes, sometimes I sent it back with more edits than I got. <laughs> Which I only did that the first two rounds of editing. And I was like, sorry, I, I, <laughs> I completely rewrote this paragraph. It just seemed clunky. Um, but, you know, and he, he, he pointed out to me, you know, this seems a little awkward or this seems underexplained or this seems overexplained or um, this descriptor isn't really working or, you know, it was nothing, it was nothing major, but it was, it was still, you know, stuff to do. Oh yeah. Editors will, make, well, editors will make mistakes because nobody's perfect. Humans humans yeah nobody's said, perfect sometimes you misread a sentence and you punctuate and correct it for what you misread not what was actually there um sometimes you put a comma in the wrong spot so okay so next question how do you determine your pen name and how do you keep them straight when you have more than a couple um I think that you only need multiple pen names if you're writing in um, conflicting genres. Like, I would write... Okay, so like, I have one major pen name I use for original fiction that's not Kira. Um, and under that pen name, I write um, a variety of erotic romance, uh, some menage, no BDSM, um, some suspense, uh, and under Kira, I feel comfortable writing whatever the fuck I want, right? But I also have a pen name where I write male male um, in original works um, separately from my main pen name because so you said agent, your main, you said your main pen name was erotica and some menage. Did you mean just head erotica? Yeah. Okay. Het romance, het erotic romance, some erotica, het. Um, I have a couple of menage that are um, two men and a woman, but but it's mostly about the woman. Um, and then some suspense that's also hit. Um, there's a background gay pairing in those books, but again, it's not explicit or on screen. Um, I I write uh, male romance, male, male male romance, professionally under another pen name, uh, and that was at my agent's suggestion. Not because she didn't want to rep it, but because she said that I'd already established a very large base in het, in, in a het readership, and she thought that it would be um, better to separate that content out. That's her job to give me instructions like that. <laughs> so I did it. You know, um, if I wrote science fiction or fantasy, I'd pick up a new pen name. Even if it, even if it was erotic, and it probably wouldn't be. Like I have a couple of ideas for fantasy, and I would probably pick up a new pen name for it. Um, I have a YA idea, and I would definitely need a new pen name for that because there's just such a divide between um, the genres. I I wouldn't want to write erotic romance under the same name that I'd write a, in a, a young adult novel. That would be a little hinky. Yeah, I wouldn't want kids um, checking me out. <laughs> oh, she wrote my favorite book. Oh, this is not... Oh, Mom? <laughs> What's going on in the story? I had considered taking that werewolf mythology, that Theron stuff, 
from that one um, AUS artist and couldn't work with and taking that into um, an original work and it would be under Kira because it would be very identifiable. Um, but the SGA project is complete wash because I don't believe in um, I don't believe in scrubbing fan fiction. So I wouldn't take anything from that except the mythology and world building I already did. Well, I wouldn't publish YA under Kira either for that very reason. I don't need a bunch of kids coming to my website. More than they already do. Little perverts. Synthetic. Oh, oh, synthetic? Yeah, I would definitely put that under Kira as well. Yeah, I would. I mean, that idea was birthed in fandom, so it kind of belongs, you know, it belongs to Kira. Um, and it would be very hard to hide that professionally. I think if you saw me writing that under a different pen name, you'd know it was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so because of the, because of the, your the Kira thing, you could publish like any genre under Kira Marcos because you'd be primarily either writing um, erotic romance or projects that are at least the world building was birthed in something that was fan fiction. Right. Right. That's actually one of my biggest fears that, that someone will come across something that I wrote under a different pen name and accuse that pen name of plagiarizing me. Yeah, well, if, if the ideas are dead similar, that would be an issue. But there are sometimes there are authors who can be remarkably similar and have like no connection. They, I mean, every author's voice is like really distinct. Like if you got in and did a linguistic analysis, like you can kind of tell authors apart but on the surface there are some authors who read a lot the same i can't remember who it was but there were a couple romance writers in the 90s that i was convinced were the same person and they really weren't <laughs> so on a for real tip if you ever come across a writer in the pro world you think this one sounds this this bitch sounds a lot like kira don't get on your twitter and talk about it send me an email please <laughs> Just saying. Carl Urban does have a new t um, show coming on. It's going to be on Amazon Prime, right? It's called The Boys or The Lads or something. The Boys. Yeah. And he's got and he's getting to use his natural accent too. It's about regular people fighting superheroes that are shitty. <laughs> shitty and arrogant. So how do you determine your pen name? Um, I I think that you, like, some pen names just fit better in certain genres. Um, I mean... Yeah, there are some very distinctively romance um, pen names that. Uh... Yeah, I mean, if you saw a science fiction book written by a woman named Tiffany, you'd be like, "Really, Tiffany? You wrote science fiction, Tiffany? Okay, Tiffany." <laughs> I know that's terrible, right? It's yeah, terrible. Just... Yo, Tiffany. But, but wait. But also, there's also some very uh, well. They're obviously not real names, okay? But there's some very to me. They sound kind of well, in a way. They're like I iconic um, romance writers. That anything that kind of smacks of that kind of vibe, where you can almost see the cursive font in your head, like Joanna Lindsay or Amanda Quick, or you know, you just don't really want to publish sci-fi under those or fantasy 
under those names, right? Yeah. Because they sound Joanna or, um, you know, and if your name is Joanna and you are publishing sci-fi or fantasy or something, don't use a scripty font. I'm just saying. <laughs> use, you, you know. Serious. You get on board that seriousness shit. Use some big, bold uh, block letters. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so you want a name that will fit into the genre. Um, and yeah. while I'm not encouraging you to catfish, um, it, I think it's pretty well established that um, women, female authors, do better um, in romance. So having a feminine-sounding name is only to your benefit in, in the romance no in genre. Whereas, if I wrote science fiction, I'd be more inclined to use initials so people wouldn't automatically know I was a, a woman and would take me seriously. Because science fiction is a male-dominated genre. Even though it was started by a woman. Just saying. I mean, I used initials for romance because I was just playing homage to my fandom pen name. Yeah. That was literally the only reason. Because all, all, I mean, all the pen names I've ever mapped out in my head, all the, you know, because I actually have some different pen names that I do editing under. Um, so, and I could conceivably publish under those names, but I actually don't want to. I prefer, I prefer to have that line be a little bit more distinct. Um, but going with JJ instead of, um, you know, some, some other name, uh, was strictly about, about my fandom pen name since I wasn't hiding the publication from fandom. And I think young sounding names will do better in YA Unless you're, unless you're J.K. Rowling. Um, and, and young adult, they want names that um, feel like a peer. So you wouldn't want to write away a, a, a YA novel and, and call yourself Agnes. Although there's, although there's, a, there's a comeback of some old-fashioned names. So you could look at which old-fashioned names are trending, like this year. And, you know, or in the last 10 years or whatever. Um but look at, I mean, you could look at the, like, I would look at probably names that were trending uh, in the last 15 years to see, to pick a name. I would probably, for something outside of romance, would probably go for something general, gender neutral. But you could pick a, like a gender neutral name in, um, in romance, and most readers are going to assume you're a woman, even if you're not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could go using a name like Cameron and, They'd probably assume you were a woman, um, even if you're not. Jamie, um, Avery, uh, Sydney, Archer. I have not heard that used as a name, but there you go. Well, Archer. Yeah. Oh, it's a girl. Okay. It's cute. I like it. It's cute. I like it a lot. That's a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, you know, so you need to pick a pen name that's going to suit the genre that you're that you're targeting. Um, and you might need more than one, depending, because like I said, you would not want to write YA and erotica under the same pen name. And so, and, and honestly, you probably wouldn't want to write erotica and um, romantic suspense uh, with no sex under the same name. What, so if, so, to the question about how to keep the how do you keep them 
how you tell them apart. It's not, I don't find it very difficult. I think you just need to concentrate on, um, don't cross the streams. Like, if you only write fantasy under this pen name, then don't write anything else under this pen name. If you only write erotica and erotic romance under this pen name, then don't stick a YA in it. So, that was really not phrased well. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, don't stick a YA in it. <laughs> right. Either way, don't do it. Um but there was... Um, and also keep a database of your pin names and what you have published under those pin names. Yeah, because each pin name is a brand. It absolutely is a brand. The, the, the bigger, honestly, the bigger hassle, it's not keeping the pin name straight, is if you start to have multiple websites, a website for each pen name, you, you would not believe my expression right now. It's a giant pain in the ass when Jetpack pushes out a, an update. Man, that motherfucker. There's a, jack, there's a Jetpack pending right now. I know. No. I, I feel you. <sighs> I'm just all huffy about it. Actually, I did mine. But I resented every minute of it. Because we just had one. So annoying. Anyway. But yeah. Um, I mean, your pin name is a brand. So treat it like one. And um, don't cross the streams. And I think it's easier that way. If you don't cross the streams. Um, the only, the only hassle comes when, and this is just, I don't know, maybe I, you, you'd have to get like an agent's advice about this is the social media presence for your different pen names. Um, I mean, YA being probably the exception, if I had multiple pen names, I would probably, you know, I would probably wouldn't, assuming I didn't need to keep them separate, you know, just have one parent Twitter account. Or something. Honestly, if, main... you, if you have two, one or two, if you have more than one pen name that needs a heavy social media presence, then you need somebody to to, to, to manage that shit for you. It would just be a pain in the ass to have to keep up with a Facebook account or whatever, plus Twitter or Instagram or, I mean, I just don't have the time or energy for that kind of, those kinds of shenanigans. The website's plenty. Um, JD Rob and Nora Roberts have books that connect. Of course, Nora Roberts and J.D. Robb are the same person. Um, and there's a J.D. Robb novel, um, novella, that connects with Nora Roberts' book called Big Jack, or something Jack. Anyway, she connected a contemporary romantic suspense novel that she wrote under Nora Roberts to a case that Eve Dallas had to solve in the In Death series um, as J.D. Robb. It's very well done. And the thing about Nora Roberts and J.D. Robb is they don't have the same voice. Her writing style is as Nora Roberts is like a rose petal. Whereas her voice as J.D. Robb is like a knife. I'm like, how, how, what? What? <laughs> have you sold? Have you sold your soul, Nora? <laughs> and she obviously puts a great deal of effort into um, crafting um, her J.D. Rob books. I could be in a tiny minority of people. I mean, I 
Nora Roberts was one of the first romance writers that I loved. I, you know, I just, I loved her writing style. And I think that I've like never, I agree with you. She does have a very different tone in her JD Robb books, which makes sense considering that's a very different genre, mm-hmm. but I just, I love her. I love, I love Nora more than JD Robb. <laughs> Actually, as I've gotten older, Nora's head hopping really gets on my nerves. Um, and she does it less in the JD Robb books. So I prefer those for that reason. She pretty much almost stays always in, in Eve's point of view. And I really appreciate that. We occasionally get work, which is really nice. Sometimes we get Peabody, but she's not head hopping through 5, 10, 15 characters like she does in her Nora Roberts books. I can't handle it. I think she thinks she's writing an omniscient point of view, but she's not. I love her. But it's not happening. It ain't happening. Even before her crossover book came out, I knew that J.D. Robb was Nora Roberts. In fact, I picked up my first J.D. Robb book because I knew it was Nora Roberts. And that was long before her crossover book came out. So at that point, it was not a secret. I think that they revealed that it was Nora Roberts probably on the second uh, publication of the J.D. Robb series. Because the first book hit the New York bestseller list. So I think after she proved she could do it under a different pen name, she said, okay, you you can tell anybody you want. (laughs) I'm just letting you know how badass I am. (laughs) The fact that she has she has tweaked her author voice in such a way that there's a distinct difference between reading a Nora Roberts book and reading a J.D. Robb book. And it was like how (laughs) what voodoo is this Nora? (laughs) What have you done? But it's very good. It's very interesting. I'd be interested to know if someone could do a linguistic study on the on like a selection of books from Nora and JD Robb to see if they could tell if it was literally the same person. I'd be very curious to know if she has some linguistics tells that cross over. So the next question I have is from TK Benjamin. Is TK in here? I think so. I saw earlier. Yeah. Oh, they were. They don't appear to be now. Oh. If I'd known they were going to leave, I answered their question before they left. Okay. Um, When you publish professionally, does your publisher send you ARCs, advanced read copies, reading copies, to get to send to reviewers? Do you use them? Do you send them? Who do you send them to? I might not get the chance to listen to the podcast live, but I always download and listen later. Um, I have gotten print arcs. And I talked about that, how I got my first books um, in, in the in the box and I carried the box around, show everybody the box. And sometimes the books, but mostly the box because I was crazy. Um, and um, But I never sent them to reviewers because I really didn't, because my publisher did that for me. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with these books? And she was like, Whatever you would want. And I was like. I can't do a book signing. She said are you sure? I said yes. I am 100% sure. <laughs> I can't. Not going to do it. Um, but she still sends me books. And I'm like. And when it comes to ebooks. You know. 
you send out your reviews to public, you know, to whoever, you know, and you get your little copies in your email and you do your thing. But um, yeah, I, I had I had no idea, and I still have literally have. I guess you could send it to that uh rom Romantic Times, but I think you only get a review in the Romantic Times if you pay for an ad. Which no. So no, I never sent print books off. I'm sure there's a process. I just I'm not involved in it. <laughs> there is like there are some groups like you can pay, uh, not pay. <laughs> you can solicit people to read your book and give them, you know, there's a Facebook group that does this that you can ask them, but and you have to provide them copies of the book. So that's something you could do with your ARCs is pr provide the book. But I mean, you got, you're taking the risk there that what they're going to, because if they're give you know, the agreement in this particular Facebook group that I'm thinking about is that they're going to give you an honest review. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that I would um, solicit uh, reviews from people on Facebook who want a free book. It might be nice. I don't know. And a lot of times, Amazon has to set up where, where people can get books for in, in exchange for reviews. But they also do other products, too. Is that Vine? Yes, that's Vine. Um, but Vine is... Um, that's hard. That is hardbound. That's hard. That's not hardbound. It's and sometimes they're pre-distribution copies. Like I got one that had a, you know, a, didn't have the actual cover on it. It was, you know, not for not for resell clearly because it wasn't the final art. It wasn't the final. It probably may not even been the final book for all I know. Um, but yeah, they submit. Usually, it's the publisher that submits, you know, X number of copies to. And sometimes it's hundreds of copies to the Amazon Vine program and people who are interested in reading that book. Um, I reviewed through Amazon Vine several Four Dummies books. And that's not Ooh. like, that's not like a trivial like line, right? The Four no. Dummies books are, are big books. So, um, and I've reviewed two travel guides through Amazon Prime to, through, through, it just was like coincidental. They were there when I was ready to do a trip. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it with me. We'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of fiction. I stopped reviewing fiction through that program because it was making me uncomfortable. I don't like saying bad things about authors. I would rather, if I didn't enjoy a book, I'd rather not say anything at all than give somebody a negative review. Uh, so here's a question in the chat. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't blame you either. If you publish an, a a book in ebook format only, are you allowed? Are you legally allowed to print and find a copy for yourself? No, you're not. We talked earlier about um, the final copy of a book. Um, that belongs to the publisher. The edits that you've done belong to the publisher. And when you get released from that contract, the publisher can say you can have your original back, but we're keeping the edits, and you can use your original any way you would like. So when you get an ebook published um, and you get that final copy from your editor, that final copy isn't yours because those edits don't belong to you and you can't use them to um, create a print copy, even if it's only one legally, ethically. I mean, you could do it, but it wouldn't be legal or, or ethics or ethical. Um, and the, the legality issue is actually around in the binding because unless you have the, the binding stuff, um, the binding material, uh, you have to get, um, somebody to bind it for you and you have to sign a paper when you take something into, uh, 
Kinko's or FedEx, FedEx office or wherever to get something bound um, that says that you have the legal right to do that and you'd be lying. It'd be fraud. But in the instance of my current publisher is Kira, if um, I wanted print copies of something, I could email her and say, hey, can we do a POD contract for this so I can get a copy of this? And she would be like, maybe. Let me check the links. <laughs> Because <laughs> well, that, that's well, what happened with Fall for You. Because I, I was like, I really want Fall for You in print, and she's like, Well, let's just go see. And it worked. So if you're publishing with a publisher, I mean, just ask them, Can I, can I have a POD of this? Can we do that? Is it, you know? And but the thing is, is it's not economically feasible to put 10k in a POD, which is print on demand. POD means print on demand. Yeah, because the price point is almost the same, right? So people aren't going to want to pay twelve or thirteen dollars for ten thousand words, and that that would just be pure vanity. But you might get talk to your publisher and saying, "Hey, I would really like my story to be in like a print anthology. Do you have any um, plans to do a print anthology? Because I'd like to be in it." <laughs> It never hurts to ask. It never hurts to ask. All they can do is say no, and then you just move on. I mean, if I had a stack of arcs, if if, they, if my if I had to bend a print book, although I don't, I sort of make a face about print books anyway. I don't even if I wrote a novel something. If I wrote something novel length and it got contracted and they wanted to do it in print, I don't know how I'd feel about it honestly because I really feel like print is just. I just don't get it. But anyway, I mean, part of me would really like to have a book in print just from a, that feels like, like a, it's like another rite of passage about publishing is to have something in print. But by it's the a milestone. End, it yeah. is a milestone. But by the other, by the same token, I'm like, I could have the same milestone to get a single copy through POD for myself to put on my bookshelf versus actually having hundreds and hundreds of copies of a book printed. That just feels like tree murder, but that's just, I don't know. It feels, it feels, Wasteful. Like it feels wasteful and it feels yesterday. I don't feel like that's where book publishing is anymore, is in print. But if I if if, somebody, if my if I did do a, a novel length and they sent me a stack of books, I would totally use them the way, you know, um as advanced reader copies. I would send them to reviewers to read. That's what I would do with them. Cause there are there are a lot of people out there who that's what they do, is they they get arcs from people and they sit down they read books all the time and sit and write reviews like they have whole blogs of nothing but their reviews but personally i don't think reviews sell books no although no i think no reviews can hinder sales so Sometimes when I'm looking at a book, like a book pops up, like related to such and such that I bought and it's gotten, it's been on, on the market for like five months and it's got zero reviews. I'm scratching yeah. my head. I'm going like, has this sold anything? Did anybody who liked this write? But on the other hand, as I have recently discovered, because I'm now up to three people who have been told who have had their reviews bounced on um, whatever it takes. Um, Amazon said these reviews don't, meet our our community standards and the reviews in two of the three cases were shared with me and there's nothing wrong i can't figure out what's wrong with them so um and 
when they tried to resubmit, they were told they were blocked from reviewing that content anymore, even though they purchased the content on Amazon. So, you know, for all I know, that's <laughs> these weird. Book, these books that are, um, and if I've heard from three people, I figure it's probably six, right? Because not everybody's right. going to write me and say, I, I got to be mean to me. <laughs> yeah. They won't let me review your book. Um, so not everybody is going to, if they even notice, I mean, Amazon could bounce a review of mine and I might not notice for three or four months. I mean, yeah, I'd get the email, but it would go under a tab that I don't look at. Right. So, so I figure if I've heard from three people, it's at least double that. Um, I It's really frustrating on, you know, on my end, of course, because these people obviously care about giving me a review and they're not able to. And um, so, you know, I, I, it, the cynical, the cynical conspiracy theorist side of me, which is, I'm certainly the cynical side of me is pretty big, but I don't have much of a conspiracy. There's not much of a conspiracy theorist in my, in me. Um, it, it makes me wonder if people who go through the Kindle Unlimited program have these issues getting their books reviews, you know, especially when there's nothing wrong with the review. So any of them. It's just like, what, what was wrong with this? So, and I, and I did some Googling, what will get your review bounced? You know, like somebody said that they had gotten a review bounced about um, having the word finger and hole in the review, but it, was, it wasn't for a, a romance or any kind of book. It was, um, it was actually on a product, not a book. And they, said, <laughs> and they said they just were trying to guess what words were objectionable. And so they took out the words finger and the word hole and the same exact review minus those two words went through. But that was before Amazon, I guess, started blocking you from reviewing if you got your re review blocked. So it's just, I don't know. So it did make me wonder when I see a book that looks interesting, it looks promising. Um, it has no reviews. I wonder how many reviews got bounced. Right. Did the, did the person who read this get their review bounced? And then it makes me wonder, does this person have reviews on other sites? Because if, if, a, if an author, and I did run into this once where I did actually look up an author on another site. Um, so I was sending a book to a friend who I found out like belatedly had Nook instead of, um, instead of Kindle. And um, they, the book had no reviews on Amazon. It had like three reviews on Nook. What are the fucking odds of that? So it just seemed really improbable that Barnes and Noble would have triple the reviews. Well, I guess triple of it's not triple the reviews. Three times nothing is nothing, but I noticed that I always have more reviews on Amazon than I do anywhere else as well. Lady Hollow says she has more reviews on Amazon than the other sites. I think some people really get off on reviewing things on Amazon. Like it's practically their hobby. No, I've written a few hundred reviews on Amazon, mostly not for books. I usually, if I, and usually it's because I like, if a product just functions, like I, I buy trash bags on Amazon. I'm not reviewing trash bags. It's just, it's a it trash bag. Job. Thank you, it Glad. Works. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Hefty. I appreciate your trash bags. I use Glad. Um, thank you, Forceflex. I really like you. But, or the, what do they call it? Proflex now or something like that? They changed the name of it. I liked Forceflex, but they changed the brand name of it. But, um, you know, I mean, if a product 
is something that maybe not everybody will review or it has no reviews and I really enjoyed it, I go and write the review on it. I'll go and write a review on it. Um, my most helpful review out there, it's got like a hundred and some odd people have said the review was useful to them, was on a sex toy. I just was like, I put all that, and it, I didn't even like try that hard, right? <laughs> I mean, I sometimes I put a lot of work into my reviews and like nobody comments, nobody, nobody marks me that this was helpful to them, right? Like you assholes, this was really helpful. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much I have to be helpful here, damn it? <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I've sat there, I spent all this time putting this effort into reviewing this you, this Bluetooth speaker and like nobody thinks that this was useful. And then like a hundred plus people think a sex toy review is helpful. I'm like, well, well, well. You put, you put that in some context now, I have to say, you know, I'm just saying. That's true. You can't return a sex toy. So Yeah, I mean, you know, a sex toy is a much more serious purchase than a Bluetooth speaker. You're stuck with it. And actually, I gave this I gave the sex toy four stars. Um, and I said, like, for one, because it, it was supposed to be a multifunction thing. And that it had two ends, and each end did something different. And uh, I was like, there's this one end. And it's so good. <laughs> You're welcome, Margaret. Yeah. Lilo is our official brand. <laughs> yes. Lilo. Um, but there's this one end on this sex toy that is so good. It is like five stars plus. The other end is completely useless. I it, the, the one end that is so good, averaged out, is still a four-star review. But I couldn't give it five stars because it's like half its functionality is useless. But the part that's useful is so <laughs> good. <laughs> that it wasn't like it was two and a half stars. No, it was four. So <laughs> I I explained that you know half this this one half is just crap, and these are even the side that's good. This is the it's still got some downsides, and this is the downside of the side that's good. And I actually was really offended by how bad the documentation was. So <laughs> how dare you send me poor documentation? Well, I said well, I what I said was is they have this really nice insert asking you to log in and review the product. And then they have terrible, terrible little cheap user leaflet. Um, I'm like, really? Really? They have this really nice, high-quality insert asking you to review the product? If you're going to give me nicer, I mean, you could give me a fucking post-it note, and I'd have still reviewed the product. But you <laughs> gave me shitty documentation. What's the matter with you? Anyway, well, the, the interesting thing about this was the company contacted me on the review and offered to send me a, any product they make of my choice to compensate for this me finding this one end of the toy um, less than satisfactory. <laughs> Did you take them up on it? Because um, no, I bought a Lilo instead. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I highly recommend a Lilo as well. I have I, I got my first one um, because well my 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 Hitachi Magic Wand broke and I was really upset and disappointed. And original Tippus sent me a gift certificate to Amazon and he told me to buy something, make myself feel better. And she did. So I did. I bought a Lilo and best thing, best thing, best thing ever. Highly recommended. I have three Lilo 10 out of now. 10 would recommend 10 out of 10. You, you can't go wrong with a Lilo. Um, or three. I have three now. For some reason, when you're talking about your documentation and being outraged by it, um, something popped into my head. I bought um, the shelf at um, 
at Lowe's and have my husband put it together for me. And I was replaced. I was putting it for kitchen organization and I was pulling this kitchen, the kitchen table out. So neither one of us used it. Basically we use it to put bowls on. So now I have a kitchen shelf to put bowls on. Makes more sense, right? So, okay. We're trying to get this table out and it's just, it's just the two of us. And, um, it just was not, it was just not working. And, um, I said, well, who put that stupid door there? It's a bad place to put a door. And I looked at him. And I think he saw it coming. He goes, this, I said, this episode was badly written. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't get that, you don't deserve to. <laughs> but he got so tickled, he had to go sit down on the stairs. <laughs> but it was inevitable. It was, it was, it was going to come out of my mouth. So, I answered all the questions on the sheet. On the sheet. And I, you don't even want to know how close it came to me not saying sheet in that moment. Did it, did it start and end with the same letter? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say the word shit, but it just would not have been appropriate in that sentence. No, it wouldn't have been. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean... I think that the best piece of advice I can give about um, being in the professional process is um, to not get your let your temper get the best of you, and to always put your best foot forward. And remember that you are creating relationships in a professional environment, and um, you got to be careful which bridges you burn. And you don't need to go into a situation as a writer assuming you know everything and, and everybody around you knows nothing. And don't get on Twitter and accuse Nora Roberts of plagiarizing your title. Right. And, this, and if you get rejected, if you submit a book and you get rejected, it could be for like a, some publishers especially, they're looking for only certain things at certain times. And if if you're out of that cycle, they're not even going to read it. They're just going to send you a form rejection letter. It's like they only want what hits hits, hits the, the submission criteria they have right then. So, like, I want to say that it's been for a while that usually for, I would say, for most of the year, um, the last few years, Dream Spinner's been closed to open submissions. There's no, they have, and maybe they open it up at a time when I'm not paying attention, but mostly that's like they've been closed to general. Every time I over, over there, it's like they're closed to general submissions. They're closed to general submissions. And um, they're only looking for things that hit, hit, hit whatever line they're trying to, or, or genre they're trying to publish in. So if you get rejected, the one thing absolutely you should not do is write the publisher back and say that they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I've heard it's this okay. Happening. It's okay to email them or to respond and say, um, ask for feedback. But if you get feedback and you might not, you ask for it. So whatever you get, you just accept it and move on. Because if they send you a form a form rejection letter and you turn around and ask for some feedback and they give you feedback that you don't like. Actually, you should just be grateful and take it on board. Don't email them and tell them they're assholes <laughs> or whatever my else what else might come out of your mouth. Just just keep it to yourself. 
pour yourself a drink, you get yourself a beer, get yourself a milk, get yourself a cream, a carton of ice cream, or whatever you need to do. Just don't email them back and tell them they're an asshat or whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to be the next great American author. All of my friends and family love this book. Blah, 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 blah. You're going to regret this. Yeah, right. I, I'm already feeling the regret. <laughs> I mean, because that's a good way to get yourself on uh, a blacklist with the publisher. And I mean, as in their email, not like an actual blacklist that they'll never publish you. In that they'll never even look at your email again because they got your email going into the deleted folder. Because you were an asshole to them. Well, and one of the things that came out in one of those big scandals with um, one of the publishers, um, one of the one of the smaller, well, one of the independent presses, not actually not small, probably one of the slightly bigger of the independent presses. One of the things that came out in like some scandals that were going on with them was that um, that some of the behavior of like the managing editor. Um, was getting like people that she had a personal beef with blacklisted across other publishers, which that's that's an example of bad behavior, right? She's using this power to get people blacklisted across multiple publishers just because she had a beef with them. Uh, and these are people; these were authors who had been published with with them. But what that tells you is take that on board as publishers talk to each other. They know each other. But also, the other side of it is is that um, I have encountered publishers who, when I was handling um, submissions or filing submissions, they would give me a list of people that they did not want to hear from ever again. And they basically had a no-go list. And if this person showed up in the email, I was to send them an automatic rejection and file it. They didn't even want to know about it. So I can't imagine what this person had done to them in the past to deserve that. <laughs> what did you do? But then, you know, there was a note on one once where it said that the he had, or the author had sent inappropriate material to the publisher on multiple occasions and had been warned but kept sending it. And I'm thinking, what could that? And then you, you, your imagination goes wild. I wonder what he sent her. <laughs> but you don't ask because... But you really want to know. You don't want to be I, associated with that content, whatever it may be. I don't know. There'd be a part of me that'd be like, hmm, is there anybody here that I have a really good relationship with that I could get some gossip from? Because I'm really curious what this person sent in. What could you send a publisher that would get you on their ban list, get you blacklisted with them? Oh, if you violate, if you violate their, 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 their list of no's repeatedly. Yeah that yeah i mean, well, if I mean you send I in pedophilia or if you send in um graphic rape or bestiality or torture porn or snuff no jade but you hurt my feelings my, that's not what my, that's not what she that's not what she heard of mine <laughs> am i am, am i the only one holding the boobies because i'm holding no jaded says has anyone ever heard the crucified nail nipple story She's going to give us a link. Oh my God, there's a link. Now, I accidentally stumbled across snuff in a submissions pile once. And I contacted my editor, my, that my, my boss, who was the editor-in-chief. And I was like, are you um, 
is there a guideline out for something that you have you, have you got a special call for creepy shit and she was like no why i said because there's snuff in my pile she said there is not i said there is snuff in my pile and it is not like a grammatical error in a vampire novel either it is actual outright snuff because sometimes if a like sometimes in the 80s and 90s when vampire novels were really popular like a vampire would turn their lover during sex if if the if the scene was not framed correctly, it would very much read like snuff. And so, but it wasn't that. It was outright snuff. Now I gotta read this. I don't want to read this. Cute picture. Okay. It's year 2012 and I've been handed what should have been an easy editing gig by my senior editor. It's a vampire erotica story. Because one of the final Twilight movies is about to come out and everything is vampires. Everything. I haven't edited a single thing in months that isn't about vampires. I'm ready. I can do this. The MC is a girl we'll call Sue. And Sue is a good girl. Sue is not like other girls. She is pale and awkward and a virgin. Of course she is. <laughs> and somehow managed to find herself a bad boy. <laughs> for a boyfriend. We'll call him Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> now dickhead has previously stated that is a, bit, is a bit of a dick he tries to pressure sue into sex because he knows she is the one but he loves her really so it's okay i already feel sorry for her i do too <laughs> having to read this i'm not gonna read all of it out obviously but there will be a link in the link library for those of you who want to to read this whole thing oh oh Okay. It says it's not okay because Sue is a good girl, trademark, and holding out to marriage, which he's fine with, except he's got such a, a bad case of blue balls. The one night walking home, an attractive stranger lures him into an alley with the words, hey, stud, and he follows Dick out before she's even finished her sentence. Well, that turns out to be a mistake for Dickhead because she's a vampire and not just any vampire, a dick-biting vampire. Is that what you went, oh... Because that's yes. where I went, oh. Okay. Yes, it was Dick Dick Biting Vampire. <laughs> the DBV. <laughs> so what started out as a skeevy blowjob behind the club that he'd feel bad about in the morning turns into him being bitten on the dick and drained of his life essence and left for dead. Except DBV fucked up and now he's a vampire. Are you still with me? Good, because it's about to get weirder. <laughs> I don't see how. I don't I don't think I want to know. <laughs> Realizing he's now an abomination, Dickhead flees, becoming a creature of the night and feeding on animals rather than humans to repent for being an at such an asshole in life. Sue, Sue, meanwhile, is heartbroken, but carries on valiantly with her life and goes to bed each night crying for the loss of her one true love, who she would do anything to bring back. Well, guess what, Sue? Dickhead never really left you. He's been instinctively protecting her from rapists by, by hiding out on her roof and fighting hobos who try to get at her open window via the fire escape for months now. Because that's not terrifying at all. <laughs> How many hobos could there be trying to get in her window? And why did it only start happening once Dickhead got bitten by a vampire? This is also true. 
The questions keep compiling. <laughs> oh, Sue blames herself. Okay. Oh, Sue blames her. Sue can do nothing but blame herself. Oh, if only she'd let him touch her secret places, then perhaps this could be avoided. I want to stab it, people already. Aww. Meanwhile, Dick, Dickhead is having another dilemma of his own, realizing too late that his vampire powers have given him super senses, and now he can smell her blood. He can't decide whether he wants to get with her or eat her. And I don't mean in the French sense. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that was French. <laughs> every day. Okay. But he is he is strong and overcomes his base manly vampire instincts and neither rapes nor kills her. Hurrah! <laughs> and the hurrah is, makes it. Hurrah. She literally said hurrah. Yeah. And this is so romantic that Sue gives it up, but not before she launches into a theory about, uh, about how in all fairy tales true love saves the day. So maybe her magical pure vagina that has never been touched by anyone, not even her, can bring him back to life. So Dickhead, being a dickhead, agrees to rip her clothes off, and not before he takes one last moment to marvel the beauty of her pure, uh, purity, because he will never look again on her again and see and know her as pure. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> 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 no, I can't. So wait, wait. So they hop on the good foot and do the nasty. Except she's literally so pure in spirit, her flesh burns his. And I quote you from memory because these words are burned into my soul. Her breast bit into his hands like crucifix nail nipples tearing at his flesh. And he did not care because he loved her so and couldn't stop. <laughs> I can't. How did she get away with putting this on the internet if she actually edited this book? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> this phrase haunts me. I dread... It, that it will be the last thing I think about up, about on my deathbed, and my last words will be literally, "God fucking, God fucking damn it!" <laughs> As I die, carrying that mental image with me into the afterlife, my only solace is in the knowing that I inflicted it on other people. <laughs> when the magical burning sex fails to heal him and leaves her bruised, battered, and broken with the dainty blue bells. Of bruises around her secret flower. I am genuinely quoting this. I would never make something. As horrendous as this up. Without being on acid. Dickhead leaves. Yeah. Off he fucks. Leaving her to mercy of the hobos at her window. <laughs> <laughs> and into the night. A true monster he really is. But wait. There's more. How could there be more? The return of the dick biting vampire. <laughs> vampire. 
Oh, and the the dick biting vampire is jealous of Sue, so he try so she tries to kill her. But again, Sue's purity saves her. How? Because she doesn't have any purity anymore. He took it. He ruined it by by touching her secret flower. <laughs> oh, because sex before marriage, which was done, which was done out of true love, is not a sin. So she's still a spiritual virgin. <laughs> I can't. A spiritual virgin. <laughs> I have never before heard of an inspirational vampire romance novel. I don't know how I feel about it. And I'll be honest, I started drinking heavily at this point. It's all a bit of a blur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a really horrible imagery coming up, but <laughs> a fight ensues some page later, some pages later, after Dickhead returns. Realizing the mistake he has made, and he rescues Sue from the dick biter, but not before he assaults the dick biter, calls her a slut for luring innocent men into the alleys, cuts her heart out by co oh, oh. I skip. At what point by cutting her breasts off, at which point I scream, that's not how you reach the heart in my brain short circuit completely. And I have no idea how it is because I realized there were 30 pages left and my soul couldn't take it. <laughs> I emailed the chief editor like and she puts a whole bunch of question marks and exclamation points. And the book was immediately pulled from the work line and the author dismissed from the publishing house. Turns out she was a friend of a friend and that was how she got her manuscript past her entry levels of requirements. And that's the story of how an author sent me death threats for months. For over a month because I stopped her shitty vampire porn from ever seeing the light of day. You are all fucking welcome. <laughs> And the and the death threats for over a month is why this story deserves its urban legend status. <sighs> that is stunning. Did, did you put it in the link library? No, I'll go grab it and do it right now. Crucifix nail nipples. I can't even. I can't. I can't. <sighs> but she's right. That's not how you reach the heart. I can't believe she got this far into it without emailing to complain the to, to the editor. I'd have gotten the dick biting vampire and been like, "Are you are you okay? Are you smoking crack?" Call her house. Hey, dude. So I was reading the assignment you gave me, and um, did you read it? Because I'm curious. Have you read it? Open it up. <laughs> Scroll down to page three. Um, tell me what you think. About the dick biting horror vampire in the in the alley. I'll wait. <laughs> How long would it take to be drained through your dick? I don't. Clearly, I mean, is there, it... a, the, well, the major artery is in the thigh, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I mean. It would take a lot of time to drain a man's blood through his dick. Is there, is there even a vein? I mean, there's a vein, yes, but well, there has to be arterial flow, but there's not any. There's not a big artery. Okay. I don't think the, that, I don't think the penis has a very has a significantly large artery. The penile artery 
is the artery that serves blood to the penis. It is a terminal branch of the internal pudentiary artery along with the scrotal artery. It divides into three arteries. It's above utheral, the dorsal, and the cavernosal artery. I realize that this real that the realism is a problem, but this this is actually when suspension of disbelief is really important. If you're gonna do some crazy fucked up shit, like have a vampire, like a dick biting vampire in an alley, you need to get to, to pay attention to your logistics. So the internal pu- pudental artery is the main vessel that supplies oxygenated blood to the penis. Which it it pulls on a lot. And it does, it is a branch from the femoral artery, obviously. But the question becomes, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think he should practically have to bite his dick off. Because there's a superficial dorsal vein, but I don't, I think she would have to hit her artery in order to get enough blood. I do think you're right that the editor should be able to sue this author for PTSD, like for emotional damages, because if she can still quote it, I, you know, the, the hobo thing bothers me as well, because I didn't even know they still called hobos hobos. It also, I mean, like, what was drawing them to her window? <laughs> was her purity that strong? Could they smell it? Could they smell her purity from the street? Okay, so the, I have femoral, questions. the femoral artery is basically depending upon where you are in the body. The common, let's say, the common femoral artery, the the superficial femoral artery. Well, actually, we'll do the superficial. Superficial femoral artery is two and a half, depending upon where, to almost ten millimeters, so almost a centimeter. Okay, um, depending upon you know this. Your, your blood vessels vary in size depending on how big you are, but the average size of the femoral artery is approximately, that's the two and a half is really narrow, but we're talking about four to 10 millimeters. Okay. The, the main penile artery is two to three millimeters. So how would they, I just, even if she hit that artery with that deep dick bite, <laughs> I just don't see how she's going to, Drain somebody there. That I mean, it, I mean it would have to be. It, it, it wouldn't be quick. It would be like, I mean, hours. It's like drinking a Capri Sun, right? It's just not because it's just not going <laughs> to go. Straws, those tiny straws, <laughs> and also, um, blood clotting. Yeah. Well, I mean, vampire fangs aren't hollow. They don't suck through their teeth, right? They make a they make a hole and then they suck the blood out as it wells up. And depending upon where the hole is made, I mean, there is, I, some people may think that people suck it, they suck it through their teeth, but they don't. Um, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, of course, vampires are mythical, but I've never read Hollow Tooth Vampire. Um, but, um, like, femoral artery is so, especially the, at the upper part of the thigh, is so big that a puncture, you could bleed to death, right? But most things, most most punctures in a smaller artery, um, a small puncture, 
you you especially since it, you're just sucking it out right well, not you this dick biter is sucking it out it would be it would be capri sun i'm i'm just it's just all kinds of wrong i <laughs> i got nothing But the crucifix nipples. And it's a horrible turn of phrase. It is a horrible turn of phrase. There is no doubt. Just say no. JD has a very, very, very good point. If her nipples were burning his hands, I hate to think what her pussy was doing to his dick. Well, considering the trauma his dick has already been through. I mean, is it healed? Do we care? No, not really. I mean, did it cross his mind if he was if he hadn't been so rough, it might not have been so painful for him? Huh? Well, he she had bruises all around her flower. Oh, right, right. Well, but that doesn't account for what happened to his hands with the crucifix nail nipples. I mean, was he bracing himself on her tits while he was That's rude, dude. <laughs> it's all the rude. You're right, Margaret. It's all the rude. Are you up past your bedtime? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're our favorite barely adult person. She's so cute. She answered it like I was serious. So her lift, her nipples left stigmata. Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> stigmata nipples. <sighs> Stigmata nipples. I can't even. So that is utterly bizarre. I. Well, the thing is, is that the Jesus allegory um, is an allegory older than Jesus. Just saying. <laughs> the historical figure of Jesus. I'm side-eyeing you. Queenie's saying no. And no means no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, so what did happen to the hobos? <clears throat> well, they only apparently started attacking once he be was dick-bitten. So, maybe they were attacking I mean, because... Maybe they were actually there to protect him from her, protect her from him. Right, they apparently only like got involved once he was perching on the roof like a creeper. Right, they were protecting the neighborhood virgin and her purity bluebell, her purity flower. They're protecting her special place, and she blamed herself. I don't even. They did know they were they were trying to protect her from the dickhead. Perspective is everything, you guys. POV, POV. <sighs> yeah, pretty much secret flower is going to be a thing. I don't want it to be a thing. It's a thing. I just. Does anybody else have, have any questions about um, uh, publishing, writing, etc.? You know, Sue put her put her faith and trust in the author. And and the author let her down. 
I mean, all had Sue um all, all Sue had was her purity and her secret flower, and the author just couldn't be trusted with Sue's purity. Sue definitely needs to keep her purity. Yeah, it, it, she, uh, she kept her spiritual purity, and and that's all that matters. I don't know. I mean, someone who's who is so pure that they that that their flesh burns a vampire sounds sort of like a Mary Sue to me. Now, to be fair, I mean, she is the one who theorized that she was so pure that she could cure him of his dick bite. Um, his dick bite. But if she had actually been a Mary Sue, it would have worked. This is true. This is true. The magical hoo-ha. You know, it's not often that we get a magical hoo-ha in, in, in a story. It's most often a magical dick, so... We, but we didn't get a magical hoo-ha. It didn't work. We got a possibly magical hoo-ha. Well, it did burn the vampire. Well, but it didn't cure him. And, you know, honestly, he didn't deserve to be cured. Maybe her purity understood that, because he was a dickhead. <laughs> Ellie says it was a holy hoo-ha. <laughs> That probably is the um, the right term. Yes. <laughs> His dick was magical. It survived a vampire and a spiritual fire. <laughs> it was something. Uh, we can't help but debate it. We need to go back and talk about the hobos again. Because... <laughs> I don't get the hobos. That you know, I once read a story um, a long, long time ago. Um, it was um, I was beta. I was I guess I guess really it was probably an alpha read. I didn't know what an alpha read was at the time, so I wouldn't say it was a beta, but more of an alpha. And she sent me this novel and asked me to read it. So I read it, and I wrote back and I asked her. I was like, is there any particular reason why every single man in your story wants to rape your heroine? I mean, none of them get to do it, but they all want to. I mean, so, like, how did your heroine get stuck in a town full of rapists? Well, that's really deeply unfortunate. I mean, like, every single man in her life wanted to rape her. Including the hero. But he wow. refrained, but he refrained because he was he um he was fighting his urges. And I was like, "Ew, dude, don't don't send me any more of your weird fetish, your rape fetish shit." I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> the worst part is, is there was that. I mean, not the worst part. The worst part was the rapist part, but it was like the romance. I mean, she gets with the hero, right? And, um, like, because he can't control his sexual lust for her, they agree to be in a platonic marriage. Huh? Right? Because <laughs> he can't trust himself. I just, I was just. I don't even I don't, know what to do. I don't. I don't think I'd. I'd feel comfortable being in a, in any kind of being around someone whose main occupation was fantasizing about raping me. Right. Right. Blech. 
I agree. Actually, the author did ne- did need some fucking therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally needed therapy. She always wrote heroines who made terrible, terrible choices. And this was like my this was like the straw for me. This was the, this was the final straw. I couldn't handle anymore. I was done. Of course, she was really pissed at me because um she um she said I um I didn't understand her her voice or her craft or her purpose and i'm like i don't you're right i don't understand but moreover honey i don't want to what is there to understand you have rape fantasy i don't get it i don't want to get it some people don't like to be told the truth about their work and they don't like you to have perceptions of their work that are contrary to their purpose. And I've, I've said it before. And I'll say it again. You cannot control. What your reader gets out of your story. You can strive to tell a story. About a specific theme. But you can't make your reader. Have the same perceptions that you do. They don't have your life experience. They don't have your history. We're all very unique. So what I get out of a book won't be the same thing that Jilly gets out of a book. And that's perfectly okay. But when you encounter a reader who's gotten something out of your story that you never intended in a million years, don't argue with them. Because you don't... Unless they're accusing you of shit. You know, because you can't control what they think or what they get out of something. And moreover, a lot of readers have a hard time separating the author from their work. Like, if you have a character in your work that expresses a really terrible opinion, um, like, for instance, in what might have been, Sebastian, who's from California, who's basically traveled a lot of the world, seen a lot of exotic things. He's been to Australia. He swam, you know, his, his mom took him, you know, took him everywhere, wherever she went. Um, so she also, so he spent a lot of time in beautiful coastal cities around the world. Um, and he's with um, his dad and McKay and their security team in um, um, a bookstore and they're buying stuff. And there's a magazine on one of the racks featuring him. And um, he turns to, McKay and says apparently I would be better off in in a hovel in Nebraska than with two gay men or something very to that very to that way because the thing is I picked Nebraska because it was in the middle kind of and I was thinking what city would be the least you know what state would be the least appealing to a 10 year old from California who basically grew up on a beach Nebraska (laughs) but I got two different emails from people Telling me, and I think he used the word illiterate too, telling me that people in Nebraska didn't live in hovels and they weren't illiterate. I'm like, bitch, I know this. My character said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> He's 10. He's from California. He's a little asshole. <laughs> I know that what you're talking about, Dark, nor Roberts, no, J.D. Rob. It's J.D. Rob book. Um, Peabody slut shamed somebody. In that book. And I. When I read it. I was a take, I, I was taken aback. Because it seemed out of character. For the character. 
and of all the characters in that particular series, Peabody is um she's a free ager, she's open minded, she she's modern, she's um a little alternative, she's got you know her IT boyfriend going on, and you know she she just it didn't seem on character for her to slut shame somebody. It just it seemed completely out of character. And I thought it when I read it the night I bought it, which was the night it came out. I was like, whoa, that was just a little, what the hell was that? But then I pushed past it because, okay. Yeah, I mean, Peabody can be pretty emotional. No, I just thought it was bad writing. I didn't assume it was Nora Roberts' opinion. I just assumed that she she made a mistake. That she and her editor both missed a uh a step and and was kind of off on Peabody's characterization. But of the two characters in the scene, it would have been even more upsetting if Eve had said it. I don't think either one of them should have said it, but it would have been worse coming out of Eve's mouth than, than Peabody's. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that readers called her on it because it did seem out of character. What are you doing over there, Jillian? Pondering my life choices. <laughs> and what are your life choices over there that you're pondering? I'm just just all of them. <laughs> everything, everything that's happened the last few weeks, that's what I'm pondering. We actually do have a podcast coming up called Out of Character when we talk about Fuck is my favorite adjective. My favorite verb and noun too. Yeah, that too. Yeah. It's my favorite word. And it's it, it's apparently Eve Dallas' favorite word too. And you know, frankly, I I think that her books don't have enough cussing in them. And I think books without cursing in them are utterly unrealistic. And considering line of work, it seems like there would be. I mean, she's a murder cop for fuck's sake. You think she'd be swearing up a storm? And look at and, the, and considering the people she's around, you think she'd be swearing all the time? Yeah, if I had to live with Somerset, <laughs> well, he does cook and clean, or he has the robots clean for him. He does cook. I mean, I could probably put up with that. Actually, but you'd still swear a lot. Yeah, I still swear a lot. You might swear extra. He irons, yeah. I mean, he irons, and that's that's pretty valuable. Yeah, I'm not sure they even have a litter box. How's that working? How's the cat going to the bathroom? And they they never discuss the litter box. Is there a robot that takes care of that? Is is there a robot litter box? Allow us to assume there's a robot litter box. Yeah, there is. There's one now. There's surely one then. I've been playing my Sims game for months, and I just recently realized that that, that it has a, a a a robot vacuum. It has a Roomba. Does so it? Like there's, a, there's a Roomba. So, of course, I put a Roomba at every house. I was like, there's a Roomba. Galahad has a character, and we never discuss how characters go to the toilet. That's right. 
We don't want to know. It's none of our business. When I had a cat, I had a robotic, um, I had a litter maid. It worked very well. Yeah, they have auto chefs, but it's not really an auto chef because apparently Somerset stocks it with stuff. So it's like he stocked. So it's kind of like really like some kind of weird ass microwave or something. Because Somerset stocks it with, with um, food it, that he makes. It's like their refrigerator and a microwave at the same time. And I want one. <laughs> it's, I want somebody else to stock it for me. What I really want is one of those replicators from Star Trek. <laughs> That's what we need is a replicator. Because you wouldn't actually trust anybody to go shopping for you to stock it. And what's the point of going shopping for it to let somebody else stock it? That just seems like it's... Right? I'm going to go get all the stuff, but then you put it in the thing. <laughs> you make it and you put it in the thing. I appreciate it. No. No way. I'll make it. Never mind, you're fired. <laughs> I don't need you after all. She just I made a mistake. Herself, she just talked herself right out of it. <laughs> Why did Why I does she have this fucking auto chef about to cook all this shit? And shop. And apparently it doesn't keep food fresh indefinitely because when he first hooked up with Eve, he had to get a stale bagel out of her auto chef to eat for breakfast. I'm like, what's the point? Technology is failing me. That stale bagel bothers me, obviously, since I remember it. Not always. He did get a stale bagel out of it once. He fixed it. I think he fixed it because he owned her building. Still. I mean... You would think, by that point, they would have an apparatus to keep your bagels from going stale. I think I just bought 200 ounces of salad dressing. Why the hell did you buy two? See, this is why she's questioning her life choices. Why are you shopping during the podcast? Well, no, I got this funny little email and I was like, does, does that say what it, I think it says? And I'm like, this can't be what I did, but I really do think I did. She she bought 200 ounces of salad. How, what the hell are you going to do with 200 ounces of salad, of salad dressing? Well, I'm trying to cancel the order. I'm not, I'm not going to have, I mean, I didn't do the actual math on this, but that's... Ugh. I'm not going to do anything with 200 ounces of salad dressing. I'm going to take it. If, if it ever arrives, I'm taking it back. Ew. You just don't put oil and vinegar on some things. Yeah, what kind of salad dressing? Oil and vinegar. <laughs> Italian. 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 I mean, I like Italian. I actually prefer Caesar. But you don't like it 200 ounces worth. Nobody does. No, I mean, well, I mean, it, it would probably last a long time. Probably longer than the oil is actually good for. True. Well, yeah, you could marinate a whole lot of fucking chicken with it. Uh, several, gall several giant turkeys. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this new wave. I have a new wave oven. Um, and I bought a turkey and I bring the turkey home and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get my new wave. So I get everything ready. I bring that turkey over to the new wave and I, 
And I just sit there and stare at it. My husband comes in something wrong. I said, my turkey's too big for the new way. <laughs> he says, what? I said, my turkey's too big for the new wave. I said, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> he said, well, why'd you buy a turkey so big? I said, it was the only size they had. And I wanted a turkey. He said, well, now you got to put it in the, in, the, in the oven. I said, I don't have a roasting bag for the oven. Are you going to baste this turkey every 30 minutes for the next three hours? He said, well, have you tried the extending ring? <laughs> I said, I don't think the extending ring is going to increase the circumference. The, yeah, the width of your of new, the wave. new wave. Um, I did end up cutting it into pieces as. Yeah, I did end up. Um, actually, what I did was I basically splash cocked it and cut it in half. And then I roasted the halves individually. So. If there's a better word than splashcock, I'm not sure what it is. If there's a better word than what? Splashcock. My brain just broke. <laughs> Am I saying it wrong? Spatchcock. There's no L. I mean, splashcock. Yeah. It's a very satisfying process. I mean, you 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 cut the 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 backbone out. Although, in in retrospect, if I ever want to spatchcock a turkey again, I will have my butcher do it for me because it was not an easy process. It is very easy to do it to a chicken, but to do it to a turkey, it was quite a battle. I had to get out my lobster scissors for it. It's fierce. Yeah. I might have been better off getting the, you know, like, the circular saw. Why wouldn't I have lobster scissors? Oh. Well, yeah, they're a thing. I'm not allergic to shellfish. I'm allergic to oysters and um, scallops, which are not technically shellfish. I can eat shrimp, I can eat lobster, I can eat crab, but I can't eat anything in the oyster mollusk family. So, no scallops, no oysters, no um, mussels. But I can have shrimp, lobster, most fish. I've never had a problem with any fish. So, tuna, salmon, mahi-mahi um, uh, is really nice. Yeah, but no, but no clams either. No clams. I can't have anything in the moss family because I'm allergic to scallops and it will spread. <clears throat> if I was allergic to lobster and shrimp, I'd, I'd have to go get shots. <laughs> Do they make shots for that? Because I need shots. <laughs> because no. Dude. But no, but apparently if you're allergic to mollusk, it isn't likely to spread to other kinds of seafood whereas if you have a shellfish allergy it's like boom in your immune system you need to avoid basically all fish just just to be safe so i'm really lucky in that respect but i'm pretty sure we exhausted the topic a long time ago so 
So spatchcock trivia, because I was looking it up to see if, because <laughs> that's what I do, right? If spatchcocking turkeys was even a good idea. Um, I did what so, I had to do. You did what you had to do. But they talk about it. It's, it's typically reserved for chicken. and You can do it with any poultry, but it is re- typically reserved for chickens and smaller who have bones that are easily cut. But it says, I was just intrigued by what it's abbreviated. They said, it, it's, it's been said that spatchcock is an abbreviation of dispatch the cock. In other words, kill the chicken. That's hilarious. <laughs> now, we were on topic for a good hour and 45 minutes, actually. At the very least. Well, once we were, you edit out, once you edit out the thoughtful silences, uh, yeah, we, we were, you know, totally but in real topic. time, through almost to midnight. Then there was crucifixion nipples, and, and things and kind of went off just, the rail after that. They just have to. That just has to. Once once crucifixion nipples happen, well, and we we all took it the wrong way because we all grabbed our boobs. We're like, what? Right? Because all I kept thinking about was, oh my god, what is sticking the nipple? What happened to that woman's nipples? Did they nail her nipples? Did they nail her nipples? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, but spatchcocking that turkey was some work. Like I said, if I ever want to have a spatchcock turkey again, I will be asking my butcher to do it for me. I'd have just probably gone outside where I didn't have to worry about like contamination from flying things and just gotten the big cleaver out and just gone to town. But I had no choice. I, you know, I had to do what I had to do. You had to cook that bird. You you bought right. it. You had to cook it. Right? I think there's just some things I would leave to the butcher. I'm not particularly interested in that level of hackery. Well, okay. Also, I never buy a whole lobster. I have never, ever bought a whole lobster. And I never will. I prefer the tail. I like it to be not attached to the animal when I get it. Yeah. Now, I have actually, uh, I take it back, I have purchased a whole lobster. But by the time I got the lobster, all it had, all I got was the parts that were edible. Because I was like, I, I kind of want that lobster, but I only want the parts you can eat. Can you do that for me? Can you, can you kill it for me? Because I don't want to kill it. I just want to eat it. And <laughs> the butcher was like, yeah, honey, I can do that for you. That's a great. I'll take that one. <laughs> so, but I don't want to be here for it either. So I'm going to go over to the other side of the store. And I'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> I can't witness it either. I don't want to know what you're going to be doing. So I'm taking off. <laughs> I shall return. Maybe. No, I will. I'll get coming back for the lobster for sure. And I did come back. And he gave it to me. And um, I was like. And I could eat all the parts you put in this package, right? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. <laughs> Which basically turned out to be the claws and the tail. Basically, it was claws and tail. And there was a little meat that was not in the shell. But other than that, it was, you know, there was no body. There were just parts. That's <laughs> not getting better, is it? It's not getting any better. But yeah, I don't... I mean, do you know that if you, when you buy lobster, that if you buy two, you can't leave them in the same drawer in your refrigerator? And the reason that they have little um, rubber bands on their claws isn't to protect you, it's to keep them from eating each other. So if you stick two lobsters in a drawer, you're going to come back to one lobster. 
and the carcass. That's some fierce shit. Yeah, if they're both going alive. Yeah. <laughs> there could only be one. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't scream when they go into the to the water. Lobsters don't scream. It's steam um, escaping their... Um, it's steam. Their body cracks. They're not actually screaming. And yeah, it, yeah, it's best to, to insert your knife near the back of the head to kill them first. But even if you don't, they're not actually screaming. It's a... Uh, it's a... Uh, Jilly, are you there? Yeah. What is it? What is that? What is that process? Was the was the steam and the shell and it does sound like screaming, but I don't think lobsters can actually make that kind of noise. It is their body responding to the to the heat and steam like like a tea kettle. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it does sound like screaming. But yeah, it's always best to kill lobster before you cook them. Just insert your knife. Behind the head, which is why I don't like to do my own lobster, which is why I buy parts and not the whole thing. All it says here is the sound you hear is expanding air bubbles trapped in the shell. So it's expansion and the air has to find a way out. But um, yeah, buy parts, don't buy the whole animal. I mean, fish, crustacean, just don't, just don't. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Let your butcher kill it. If I had to kill my own food, I'd be a vegetarian. <laughs> I mean, did you walk away before or after the crucifixion nipples? Because we do have a bad vampire story to share if you were not here for that. You can check the podcast link library for that. Crucifixion nipples. Who walked away for the crucifixion nipples? I, well, Ellie says, uh, wow, walk away and hear insert knife behind head. I have a, I have a bad BDSM vampire thought. I was talking about killing um, lobster. Oh, but honestly, honestly, if I had to kill my own food, I'd be a vegetarian. Isn't that the damn truth? And I could Maybe. probably eat eggs if, you know, if I could, you know, get around my chicken phobia. <laughs> Except maybe cows. I mean, those heifers probably deserve it. I mean, you know, I would have to get with somebody who'd be willing to kill for me. Yeah. So I could eat meat. I'm sure you'd manage. Yeah. You'll kill for me, right? <laughs> like, you mean like another person? No, I was thinking like a cow. <laughs> a cow. <laughs> maybe a chicken. Occasionally. Oh, yeah. I'll totally What's really it. funny is I did grow up on a farm, actually. And so, um, but yeah. I never I could be. What do you do with that? Butchering, butchering really messed with me. Chickens are definitely assholes, and turkeys are worse. But nothing, and I do mean nothing, is as bad as a peacock. Those sons of bitches. <laughs> oh, peacocks are the fucking worst. Oh my god. Beef, even frozen, won't last a couple of years. I mean, if you were able to process it and get it frozen, 
you probably have about a maybe eight months to a year to eat to eat all the cow. I mean, <laughs> I guess you could smoke it or salt it. I mean, in theory, I mean, like if it was a choice between year-old frozen meat and starvation, I would go for the year-old frozen meat. But right. it's certainly not. It's certainly not optimal. I mean, it would be. You need to cook the hell out of it. Yeah. It'd be like you had to cook it to the consistency that you basically be chewing on leather. It'd be jerky. And that, yeah, that's only if you properly butcher it and wrap it. If you if you make a mistake in the organs, you can taint the whole carcass. So you know how you ever get these emails like if you're on um you buy a product on Amazon and somebody asks a question about the product, you'll get a ping from Amazon saying, Can you answer this question? You ever got those? Yeah. So I get a ping about um the Apple iPhone adapter because um, you know Apple doesn't have a three and a half millimeter jack anymore mm -hmm. and the question will this work with my iPhone <laughs> will the iPhone adapter work with your iPhone I don't know maybe anything's possible It'll, it, certainly has a better it certainly has a better chance working than an Android adapter I mean you should respond back. Well, only if you plug it in properly. <laughs> only or just only if you plug it in. <laughs> you gotta plug it in. This is what I get for leaving my email up. You know, it's like every stupid thing that comes through. I'm seeing it. I'm like, I should just close it. But I'm weirdly addicted to some of the stupid. stupid in my some stupid of the shit. stupid. Yeah. Stupid shit. Anyways, well. I think we're going to end this podcast since nobody else has any questions to ask. Did I, did I answer all the ones? You did. I I'm going to answer that writer's block one in a full podcast. So, no. I think that's it. I double-checked the file. You got them all. I don't think there's anything in the podcast question, is there? No, just the, um, the right one the, for the, desert with the writer's yeah. block. And we're going to do a whole podcast on that. So, I think that's it. Well, as is provided a an answer for your question. First, you need a vat of marmalade, a live chicken, four hamsters, and a block of cheese, and a 90-year-old virgin. <laughs> then on the live of the full moon. <laughs> I plug get, it into your phone. I'd probably get reported Turn as around being three times. <laughs> I get reported as inappropriate, and I'd probably get my Amazon account suspended. <laughs> So yeah, your your character bashing one is on my list, but that's more of a fandom thing than a um, writers' table thing. So that's a fandom and junk, but it is on my list. I got gotcha. you. Well, actually, Jilly got you because she's the one that made the list. <laughs> But we actually did a podcast where we, we talked about character bashing before, but I don't remember which one it was. I don't either. It's been a while. I mean, they're over. I actually uploaded today, I think, my... <laughs> I have 402 podcasts. Wow. Yeah. 
crazy cakes. So, yeah, I did do some fandom bang, fandom banes where we uh, killed Ziva a bunch of times and we killed Jenny Weasley a bunch of times, and um, we did one on Gibbs and we did a one on Dumbledore, I think. Yeah, I think so. But we didn't, I don't, we, we talked about, I think we may have talked about character bashing a little bit in those, but the character bashing was a different context about like, just because you don't, um, we're talking about the difference between actual like character bashing and just an interpretation of a character. And we did talk about that in, it was probably like a podcast on characterization or something, to be honest. I yeah. don't think it was, I don't think it was the full topic though. I think it no. was, it was, no. it was, it came up incidentally to something else. Yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't a full-on thing, but I do have a, um, I think I already, I don't think I have art made for it yet, but it's definitely on my list to make art for. Well, as if I did a po podcast on 101 Ways to Kill Ron Weasley, you would have to be my guest, because that's like no, your major yeah. hobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it might have come up in the Dead Air podcast, because we did talk about how a lot of fans were like, oh, Ziva and Tim wouldn't do that. Like, they just totally erased it from their brain. Do you see this distinction she just made in the chat room? I said she's made a hobby out of killing Ron Weasley. She says, I've only killed him twice. And she says, no, wait. I set his dick on fire once, I'm a and I've only killed him once. She set his dick on fire. No, you killed him more than that. Are you sure? I killed him twice in the same fic. <laughs> oh, no, I think it was Senna who killed him. I think that's where I'm thinking of. The, the death I'm thinking of is something Senna wrote. I just usually attribute Ron's death to, to mentally to, to Az. There you go. <laughs> but I, I love your distinction. I mean, like, he survived getting his dick burned off. You're not the first one to give Ron Weasley a sex change. There's another one where where the stult, where the troll, basically groin stomps Ron, and the the only option they have is to make him a girl. I mean, sometimes let's see. Sometimes you're on fanfiction.net, as one does, and and you stumble across something, and you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you just can't stop. You just can't stop yourself. Ooh. Hmm. Let's not. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to edit all out. Let's edit all of her humming out. <laughs> I have it in my bitchcraft question list. Oh, you got it. Maybe I added it to the list you gave me. Could be. Because not in the one that's in our, you know, visual aid channel. Yeah, I added two. Um, one from Angelic Insanity and one from Shadow Light. Okay. Okay. Sorry, dudes. You ever have that moment? Yeah, so I follow quite a lot of Fic Finder groups, like a ridiculous number of them. Um, because it always seems like that there's some unknown fic that somebody remembers. I remember like this one thing. I found some really good fics through following those. And so I found some awful stuff too. But some really good stuff. And the other day, somebody posts. Oh, it was a while ago, actually. Maybe a little longer than the other day. Somebody posts a, 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 um, a summary of the story. And I was like, 
that sounds really good. I got to keep an eye on this, right? Well, there's no response for a while. And finally, somebody responds and goes, I think it's this, right? And they give a link, right? So I, th- th- nothing else. And so I click on the link and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, her. <laughs> <laughs> I can't read this. For fuck's that's sake. Why I, that's why I don't, that's why I don't know this story is because her. <laughs> it was that woman. It's that woman. <laughs> well, there are there are characters, there are writers in fandom that I do not read for one reason or another. Yeah, wholesale, wholesale. And there, and, but there are other authors, authors that I will like. You call them otters. Otters. <laughs> <laughs> there are other authors I will. Um, if they write a new fandom, I'll usually give it a shot. Although lately, there's a lot of authors I follow that are moving into Good Omens. I'm like, really? I can't, I can't, yeah, I keep getting these notifications of you know such and so and so has posted, and I was like, oh, they haven't posted in a while. I click, it's a Good Omens story, and I was like, I don't know anything about the show. <laughs> I haven't watched the show yet. Now I have to go watch the show. I'm like, why are all these authors I follow writing in this fandom? Is it maybe this is I, I'm now I'm gonna have to go check the show out, but you know what it is. It's that guy from Doctor Who. People love his ass. Ten David Tennant, yeah, that's his name. He's got a huge fandom following. He must you know a, a, a new show on with a kind of cute co-star. <laughs> It's all yeah, well, it's, it's all about Donkey Kong. Well, when I have time to sit down and watch it, I'm definitely going to sit down and watch it. But I was just like, why is they moving into a fandom? But on the other hand, sometimes people move into older. They move into an old fandom or something where it's like, okay, I don't read that. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Oh, I always have room for a new fandom. I mean, I'm sure my Harry Potter readers wouldn't agree. They really wouldn't. <laughs> There were three different topics in, um, on the Facebook group today about me and my work and um, how I haven't updated Harry Potter in a while. <laughs> yeah, oh. I saw I saw your sort of pseudo snarky reply that like went right over people's heads. <laughs> like, actually, I have updated my website recently. I know, but people just completely missed. <laughs> What you meant by that. I assume you noticed that they missed it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's not a tease if I plan to deliver. And I'm going to deliver. I've got 60 plus K at Harry Potter fic. It's going to drop. Boom. In 11 days. Soon-ish. Unless something changes. What? Garth Brooks on Amazon Music. Oh no, shut up, Alexa, stop. Right, stop. <laughs> shit, shit. <laughs> You're gonna get me sued. Shut up, Alexa. <laughs> when voice recognition bites you in the ass. <laughs> I didn't even say her name, did I? She thought you did. You have to go back and find the section and back up enough to figure out what it was you said that sounded like Alexa play this song. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't. 
Although the other day, those of you who've had this problem on autocorrect will really enjoy this. I was playing Township and I told Alexa to remind me in an hour to check my ducks. An hour passes. I'm sitting here. And Alexa pipes up and said, this is your reminder to check your fucks. I spit tea everywhere. <laughs> I was like, Alexa, <laughs> you said a bad word. Well, <sighs> she'll repeat it, I guess, if you want her to. I, I don't think Siri will swear. I don't think she'll swear. She'll be sassy, but she won't swear. I was like, I can't, I can't even, but I did go check my ducks. I knew what she meant. <laughs> Actually, one of the funnest times me and my husband ever had was when we were questioning Alexa about the privacy policies. And I was like, Alexa, are you spying on me? And every time I would ask her that, she would recite the Amazon's um, privacy policy without actually saying, no, I'm not spying on you. Of course she doesn't want to admit that she's spying on you. This is like the day that I spent, like, I don't know, like at least an hour asking Siri if she was really Jarvis just because I wanted to hear all the different responses because she's got a variety of them. But you don't get the, it's not like she just, she uses them in sequence, right? Sometimes you'll get one repeated two or three times. And so I just kept going until I got all the known responses to Siri, are you really Jarvis? <laughs> because apparently I had nothing better to do for that hour of my life. But she does only have one answer to what is zero divided by zero. Which is her classic example. Her classic answer. Her classic sass monster answer. You've heard this, right? Mm -mm. I just did a screenshot of my phone. <laughs> what is zero divided by zero? Imagine that you have zero cookies and you split them evenly among zero friends. How many cookies does each person get? See, it doesn't make sense. And Cookie Monster is sad that there are no cookies. And you are sad that you have no friends. <laughs> that is awful. That is awful. <laughs> that is always what she will say if you ask her what is zero divided by zero. Which it never occurred to me to answer that, ask her that question. I had to find out about that particular sassy reply on the internet because, you know. My math isn't good, but it's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, I can't even. Although the other day I was watching a video um, of Kelsey and Pitch. I can't say her last name. Kelsey from BuzzFeed on YouTube. And she gave Alexa some instructions. And my Alexa followed her instructions. And she kind of smirked at the camera like she knew what was going to happen. I was like, girl, she said, I made your Alexa do that. <laughs> <laughs> wow she was trolling everybody so like I can't even imagine how many Alexis followed her instructions from that video because Alexa heard her I know I was so upset she didn't even get to move in with Craig Chelsea died and I was like no Chelsea oh my god she had her beautiful wedding and she didn't get to move in with Craig oh my god then they had is Craig gonna come over and mourn at the tombstone of his wife 
for the marriage. He didn't even get to consummate because Kelsey was afraid it would kill her. Craig is still a young bear. He's not allowed to be in a relationship. Oh, it's it's Craig from Dream Daddy. It's not Craig the Bear. I know. It's I'm Craig from Dream Daddy. But here's the thing. Yeah. It is actually kind of lame to be as invested <laughs> as I was in in that whole Craig marriage retirement plan. And then I didn't even get it. Didn't, I, was, I was all in. All right, Queenie. I was all in on the on the whole thing. I mean, Chelsea worked her butt off. She had 30 kids. She was going to finally get her man and go live in a little cottage by the sea. And she died in her backyard because her dumbass kids set themselves on fire at the grill. That's why you can't have nice things. She obviously had one too many children. She should have stopped at 29. Passed on the legacy. Chelsea it was the main character, the first matriarch in Kelsey and Peachamay's or Peachamay's uh, 100 Baby Challenge on BuzzFeed. She's doing the 100 Baby Challenge, and Chelsea was her first matriarch. She should have definitely retired her. That's way too many babies. And it's on Sims Four. It, it's she's playing Sims Four, and I think she had thirty. And so now her daughter's taking over. And your goal is to have 100 babies in as few as generations as possible. Like, as far as matriarchs go. So, um, I don't know what the record is, but she had 30 babies. Some of them were twins, some of them not. Yeah, yeah, it's a Sims thing. Sims 4. I'm thinking about playing the 100 Baby Challenge on YouTube, doing a Sims 4 with... Um, with with a male with, with male pregnancy as is playing it privately and her her, ma her her matriarch is up to 21 children so far good job as i don't even like i said i tried to do it once but but my but my hoochie mama she fell in love with her first baby daddy and wanted to move him in and i was like damn it girl we're trying to have a challenge she didn't want none of that. She wanted to move in with him. So I was like, fine, fuck it. Move in with him. <laughs> so you can't have a hundred babies with the same man? No, it has to be a different man. And who are you to deny her love? Right. I mean... Next time I need to make a sim who's a serial romantic who's not interested in commitment. <laughs> her, her ones and zeros had determined their course in life. and She had found her one true love and she did not want to move on. Right, you can have twins and triplets with the same dude, obviously, but you can't hit the same. But you you can't hit the same baby daddy twice, as 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 put it. But hitting up twins and triplets counts. That's not right. the same person. But you're gonna get three very yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. You could you can have you could you could bang all three brothers of a family if there were three brothers. And since twins and triplets and their families and their daddy, right? As it's twins and triplets, it doesn't running, matter if they're married. Running families, yeah. you're likely to get twins and triplets if you hit up a twin or a triplet. Yep. Just saying. So I'm not sure what the record is for anybody having done it, but um so but Kelsey's starting on her new matri matriarch with the next season, so now some of Kelsey's baby daddies were actually women. 
because she had um, downloaded um, Sims from the gallery, and some women and some women were made. You can you know with your Sims, you can make them female or male. You can make them sit or 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 stand peeing, regardless of gender. Um, and you can make them be able to get pregnant or to get others pregnant. So you can actually create a character that identifies female that can get another Sim pregnant. And so there were several times during Kelsey's game where she downloaded uh, female Sims who knocked her up. Who knocked Chelsea up, not Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very cool what's the point um it's just a challenge it's just a sims challenge there are a lot of them there's a legacy challenge um and um where you have to have 10 generations of a family and you got to start with nothing um th there's a challenge where you have to start with zero dollars you have to buy a plot of land and then cheat yourself down to zero dollars and um Basically, you have to work yourself up from nothing, literally nothing, um, but a piece of land. Um, and so, yeah. Right, because there, yeah, there, there aren't really any goals. I mean, you know, in Sims 4, there are aspirations where your characters can, like, um, you know, aspire to be a, 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 a famous rock star or a doctor or um, a best-selling writer or... Um, a world famous artist. So before a lot that when the Sims first came out, there weren't a lot of aspirations or anything, but now in Sims four, there's aspirations and career goals and you have to work through um, to get your promotions and stuff like that. And if you have kids, your, um, your kids have goals for school. They got to do their homeworks. It's very complicated and very, very cool. So, but yeah, but other than that, yeah, the, the, the Sims community started making their own challenges. Um, there, there's also a simmer on YouTube who's basically doing, um, a version of the bachelor using Sims. Like she put him in a house with six, with, with seven women and he has to pick one. And the woman who has the least amount of affection with him at the end of whatever her period is, gets kicked out of the house. <laughs> and I was curious about that. And I was wondering how she's not getting sued by somebody. Ooh. Who? I mean, the, the, the network, maybe? Is it derivative? I mean, is it... Or is it more like transformative? Is it a form I, of fan fiction? I would think it actually is. And it, it, but if it is fan fiction, then they couldn't monetize it. So I don't know where the monetization factors in. Right? Although maybe some, they just don't care. Maybe, maybe they consider it free advertising. Some transformative works you actually can profit on. It depends upon if there's like an infringement of copyright. So, but anyways, we're going to end the podcast because we're, you know, completely we could, ramp we could ramble like till two in the morning, but right. You know, we'll get thirsty and we'll have to pee. <laughs> they don't have to do a whole lot of editing. So, um, anyways, we shall uh, catch you guys later. I hope you have a fantastic uh, weekend because it is, it is technically Saturday for me. So I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend and uh, we shall catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Bye, everyone. <laughs>